You're listening to the Acadiana's Morning News Podcast, brought to you by LABI and always on kpal965.com. It's 25 before the hour. This is America in the Morning as we inch our way towards the 4th of July holiday. Let's get a weather update. AccuWeather.com meteorologist Mike Lucini. There'll be a few showers along the coast of Washington and in the Washington Cascades today. Otherwise, it'll be cool and dry across the Pacific Northwest. A cool Pacific high will promote some sunshine today, although it also promote cooler than normal temperatures across the region. Much of the southwest will bask in blazing sunshine today, although a few thunderstorms could develop over the mountains of New Mexico and Colorado during the afternoon. An area of high pressure will bring mainly dry weather to the Mid-Atlantic, Ohio River Valley, and Great Lakes today, although it will be rather warm and humid. However, a cold front moving into the northeast will help to destabilize the atmosphere and trigger showers and heavy thunderstorms across northern New England today. Amid the heat and humidity across the south, heavy showers and drenching thunderstorms will erupt along a stalled frontal boundary, which is draped across the southeast and stretches westward across the deep south into the Mississippi River. Thunderstorms will be most numerous across central Gulf Coast states this afternoon. It'll also be quite warm throughout the Great Plains today. Sunshine will help to boost temperatures into the 90s and 100s across parts of Texas, Oklahoma, and Kansas, and the humidity will make it feel even hotter. A few strong, gusty thunderstorms may rumble across West Texas this afternoon. Across the northern plains, a cold front moving off the northern Rockies will spark some strong to severe thunderstorms across the Dakotas today. And that's the nation's weather. I'm AccuWeather.com meteorologist Mike Lassini. Some Tesla workers and labor activists say the company's threatening to fire employees who haven't returned to the company's California factory because they're afraid of catching the coronavirus. A Tesla spokesman says claims of holdout workers being fired are untrue. A Patrick Stewart memoir is in the works. That coming up on today's Hollywood Minute a little later. First at 23 till... This is America in the Morning. I'm John Trout. Several states are rolling back plans to reopen, but so far, New York State has been able to hold on to the progress made in the fight against coronavirus. However, public officials don't want to see a resurgence either. Steve Kastenbaum has the latest from New York City. Next week, restaurants and bars across New York City were supposed to resume indoor service with capacity restrictions. But the surge in coronavirus cases in many other states prompted officials here to take a second look at lifting that restriction. We see a lot of problems, and we particularly see problems revolving around people going back to bars and restaurants indoors. Mayor Bill de Blasio said too many clusters of coronavirus cases have been traced back to crowded restaurants and bars in some states. He'd like to allow struggling restaurants here to open their indoor seating for service. Look, even a week ago, Honestly, I was hopeful we could, but the news we have gotten from around the country gets worse and worse all the time. So he's putting the brakes on that portion of next week's phase three of the reopening. It is not the time to forge ahead with indoor dining. Governor Andrew Cuomo said it made sense to hit the pause button on indoor dining. And it's going to be postponed until the facts change and it is prudent to open. But the facts have to change. Uh, because at this point, it is imprudent. Everything else is going to continue. Everything else is continuing all across the state. 
He said some crowds outside of bars in New York City also give him reason to be concerned because people aren't wearing masks while also not social distancing. If you open your eyes, you see the citizen compliance slipping. You see government compliance not correcting it. What's going to happen? The virus is going to spread. But the mayor said outdoor dining has been a success here. It is the time to double down on outdoor dining. More than 6,600 establishments have taken advantage of the opportunity to use sidewalks and adjacent parking spots for outdoor seating. In neighborhoods across the five boroughs, temporary structures have been built to protect outdoor diners from passing cars. Some even have picket fences surrounding them. Steve Kastenbaum, New York. 21 till 50,000 new coronavirus cases in the U.S., the highest number ever reported yesterday. Despite the spike in Texas, bar owners continue to fight the governor's decision to scale back the state's reopening. Correspondent Clayton Neville has a closer look. Many businesses fear they won't recover from the second shutdown, with a spike in cases among 20 to 39-year-olds in Texas and citations being given to dozens of Texas bars for not following state guidelines. The governor opted to close all bars just weeks after they reopened. A group of Texas bar owners now have filed lawsuits seeking to overturn the governor's order. Attorney Jared Woodfull says the bars should be open and doesn't blame the workers for any new infections. They were acting in a very responsible manner, applying social distancing. They were using hand sanitizers. The bartender would rarely come in contact with the person that he or she was serving the drink to. Gabrielle Ellison owns a bar in Odessa and says she can't afford to close. If I don't, I'm going to lose my bar. My employees are not going to be able to eat. And, and I believe we have rights that are being trampled on right now. This is my life savings. This is my daddy's life savings. Melissa Lynn Kelly owns a bar in East Texas and had her liquor license suspended for 30 days after refusing to close. They can literally take everything that I have worked hard for. But you can go out here and get a tattoo. You can go out here and get your hair done. You can get your nails done. She says she's been forced to let several employees go. And one of them, she worked part time for me as a bar back. She was so distraught that she couldn't pay her bills, that she couldn't pay her income taxes this year that Monday morning she took her life. Kelly, one of dozens of Texas bar owners now suing the state, claiming they weren't given enough notice ahead of the closing. The Texas bar industry employs roughly 800,000 people. I'm Clayton Neville. All the focus on police in the U.S. has had its impact. Jim Bohannon takes it from here. We're speaking with Carol Markowitz, New York Post columnist and Washington Examiner contributing writer who has written a piece uh, about the plummeting police recruitment numbers. And I suppose that uh, while I find the piece rather enlightening, uh, it's probably rather predictable. Uh, or just simply note the first question in her article, what kind of person will become a police officer right now? Please expand on what you found out. Numbers have been down, enrollment numbers in police departments across America for the last decade and police departments are now bracing themselves for an even uh, lower number of applicants in this cycle. Um, so what we're facing is the communities that depend on police to, to staff their communities are just not going to have the people there and the manpower is just very limited. Um, the police officers I spoke to would not become police officers again today. They would not encourage their children to become police officers. They would not um, encourage anybody to become police officers. One officer I quote in the piece said, 
that he joined the force to help people and he doesn't feel like that's appreciated at all and that um, the abuse that they suffer just isn't worth it. Uh, again, uh, you, th this is a, a growing trend, but it's not a new trend. In other words, you're saying that uh, long before the current street unrest, yeah. we had the trend beginning. So do we have any indications right. or has it been long enough to indicate whether or not the, uh, the current problems have accelerated what was already a trend? Right. So the departments are waiting to see uh, what the trend will be, but they think that the, the protests and riots have absolutely exacerbated the problem. Um, the police officers I spoke to said that even officers who don't have any, uh, they don't deal with the public at all, are just waiting to get out. A lot of places have already seen early retirement numbers go up. So it is happening. Um, and I think that the departments are really bracing for it to happen even more so in the mm. near future. 66% of police departments nationwide report a drop in recruitment numbers. And that was a survey taken by the police executive research forum last year. Last year, right. we already had mm -hmm. a trend in which uh, two thirds of departments reported a, a drop in uh, in officers i'm wondering uh, as we talk about uh, defunding the police which uh, if you press people who, who pursue that uh, sometimes they will say yes i really mean that and other times they'll say well what i really mean is uh, reforming the police and you have to wonder why it is they don't just say well if, if reform is what you had in mind which is probably effective reform probably going to be expensive could you explain how you effectively reform by cutting the money well, that's the question. Um, and Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in New York has said that no defunding police actually means defunding police. So there is um, at least one fringe that is saying, absolutely, this is actually what we mean. We don't mean reform. We literally mean ending police departments. And it will affect communities of color and it will affect poor communities far more than it will affect richer ones. And I think that that's something that not being taken into account whatsoever. Um, the police officers that I spoke to uh, care a lot about these poor communities and they absolutely don't want to see them uh, collapse because of a lack of police. And whether the left realizes that's what's going to happen remains to be seen. Yeah. Uh, again, if in fact, let's assume that we defunded, that is to say, eliminated police, uh, common sense, ought to, which obviously is an uncommon quality these days, but common sense would tell you that rich communities are going to do fine. They're going to hire private police, probably the, the same officers who've just been let go by the, the defunded police department in a given city. The rich communities will do just fine. Others may grab a vigilante or two here and there. They may mean well and may know nothing about the law and uh, that could be a poisonous mix. And then, of course, in the poor communities, lacking those resources and already plagued by crime, it would become a tidal wave of crime. And I have to wonder, are we really talking about some people, including in some cases people in responsible positions, who actually believe that if the police went away that we would all just suddenly be really nice to each other? Right. Well, look, we just had the experiment in Seattle. The Chaz, um, you know, the anarchists took over these blocks in Seattle and established their own society. And they had several murders and they still expected the police, even though they wanted to defund the police and even though they consider themselves a separate country to arrive and investigate those murders. Well, if you defund the police, they will not arrive and investigate murders um, when something like that happens. And again, the irony also in Seattle is that the mayor was fully supportive of uh, the Chaz and she was 
saying that it was going to be a summer of love until they showed up at her door and then suddenly she wasn't. So, yeah, I think that's the, the situation of the people who want to say defund the police. Carol Markowitz, New York Post columnist and Washington Examiner contributing writer. 13 before the hour, Russian bounties on U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo speaks out when America in the Morning continues after these messages. Texting enrolls you into reoccurring automated text messages. Message and data rates may apply. Come on, one more rep. You got this. Uh, there it is. Nice work, man. You're a beast. Thanks, man. I feel better than I have in years. And I got to tell you, taking Nugenics makes a huge difference for me. Nugenics? That's the uh, testosterone booster with TV ads with Frank Thomas. The big hurt, right? Oh, yeah. The patented key ingredient is Testafin, which helps boost free testosterone levels and increase lean muscle mass. Well, it's clearly working for you. Hey, are they still giving out complimentary bottles for people to try for themselves? Yeah, Nugenics is a great way to increase lean muscle and feel stronger with more energy and endurance. Man, I need to get a complimentary bottle of Nugenics. No problem. You just got to send them a text. Text BELT to 42424 right now for your complimentary bottle of Nugenics, the number one selling free testosterone booster at GNC. Plus, text now and we'll include a bottle of new Nugenics Thermo, our most powerful fat incinerator ever, to help get you back into shape fast, absolutely free. Text BELT to 42424. That's BELT to 42424. Allison is perfect. I mean, she'd never tell you that. She's humble and perfect. She likes everyone. She even likes her untidy roommate's weird guinea pig. Allison, wait, are you texting and driving? Allison, no. That's the exact opposite of what I was just saying about you. Why, Allison? Why? Texting and driving makes good people look bad. Visit StopTextStopRex.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Adopt U.S. Kids presents Multiple Choice Parenting. You've messed up your daughter's haircut. Do you, A, get spiritual? Mom, where's the mirror? Beauty is within. Oh. B, find the positives. Less time blow drying, more time texting. Or C, show empathy. Mom, you really don't have twinsies. I kind of love it. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. For more information on adoption, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. 32. It's 11 till. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is pushing back against reports that Russia put bounties on the heads of U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan. Terry Moore reports. During a State Department briefing, Pompeo would not discuss specifics, but he criticized the news reports. We see threats in intelligence reporting to our soldiers stationed all over the world every single day. Pompeo told reporters that President Trump takes credible threats seriously. He insisted the president is well aware of the risks that Russia poses to the U.S. and the dangers that American troops face in Afghanistan. In a way that protects America, keeps Americans safe, and every day working diligently to make sure that we keep our soldiers safe. Pompeo said it's not surprising that Russians are engaged in Afghanistan in a way that's adverse to the United States is nothing new. Trump has called the Russian bounty reports a hoax, and the White House claims they are based on unverified and alleged intelligence leaks. I'm Terry Moore in Washington. It's 10 till record levels of COVID-19 cases are being reported across the U.S. Yesterday's number, 
50,000 new cases. So what is or isn't working in treatments? Well, the experts are considering a new approach, and Britt Conway has more. Pool testing. Many health experts say it's the necessary next step in testing and tracing COVID-19. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration issued recommendations for this testing strategy earlier this month as companies and schools look to have mass screenings. Dr. Anthony Fauci says the White House Coronavirus Task Force is seriously considering this. Fauci told the Washington Post, something's not working. I mean, you can do all the diagramming you want, but something is not working. What you need to do is find the penetration of infected people in your society. And the only way you know that is by casting a broad net. Fellow task force member Dr. Deborah Burks agrees, saying pool testing is what is needed to get the testing numbers where they need to be. And she hopes this will eventually help people get back to their lives faster. I'm Britt Conway. Here's Robert Workman with sports. The NFL has decided to shorten its preseason schedule from four games to two, essentially removing the first and fourth week's games. Training camps will still open July 28th, but the first games will be played between August 20th and 24th, with another round August 27th to 31st. Some adjustments in opponents will need to be made in order to give every team one home game and one road game. This addresses one of the contentions of the Players Association. They wanted more time for players to get into football shape after this unprecedented offseason. Also puts in an extra buffer before the start of the regular season. The Packers signed their top two draft picks, Utah State quarterback Jordan Love and Boston College running back A.J. Dillon. They buy lunch today. Soccer, the NWSL Challenge Cup in Utah Wednesday. Portland Thorns and Chicago Red Stars played to a scoreless draw. Last night, the defending champion North Carolina Courage slashed the Washington Spirit 2-0. Play continues on Saturday. The MLS's back tournament in Orlando is set to start Wednesday. Not sure if FC Dallas will take part. Nine of its players have tested positive since arriving in Orlando Saturday. The entire club is on quarantine pending further tests. NBA training camps open next week. Rockets forward Tabo Sevalosha has opted out, and Houston will sign forward Luke Emba Amote in his stead. Forward Jabari Parker, one of three Kings players to self-isolate after testing positive, has been cleared to end his quarantine. Center Alex Lynn and guard Buddy Heald are still being tested every other day. But Coach Luke Walton says all three are doing better, and none of his players has expressed an interest in opting out. Toronto and Edmonton have emerged as the favorites for the NHL's two hub cities for its return to play. Las Vegas had been a popular choice until a recent spike in COVID cases in Nevada and other U.S. states turned many eyes northward. Training camp scheduled to begin next weekend. And with baseball summer camps opening up, this from the Go the Distance Department. Major League Baseball is looking to go ahead with plans for the Field of Dreams game next month. The original plan had the White Sox and Yankees playing in a temporary ballpark being built in Dyersville, Iowa, right next to where the movie was filmed on a diamond in a cornfield in 19. The Des Moines Register says that the Cardinals will replace the Yankees since with the shortened schedule, the Yanks and Sox don't play this year. This will be the first Major League game ever played in Iowa. That's Thursday Sports. It's 7 till. like a wet sponge in the face to make us forget about our troubles that when America in the morning continues after these messages
texting enrolls you into reoccurring automated text messages. Message and data rates may apply. Come on, one more rep. You got this. Ten. There it is. Nice work, man. You're a beast. Thanks, man. I feel better than I have in years. And I got to tell you, taking Nugenics makes a huge difference for me. Nugenics? That's the uh, testosterone booster with TV ads with Frank Thomas. The big hurt, right? Oh, yeah. The patented key ingredient is Testofin, which helps boost free testosterone levels and increase lean muscle mass. Well, it's clearly working for you. Hey, are they still giving out complimentary bottles for people to try for themselves? Yeah, Nugenics is a great way to increase lean muscle and feel stronger with more energy and endurance. Man, I need to get a complimentary bottle of Nugenics. No problem. You just got to send them a text. Text BELT to 42424 right now for your complimentary bottle of Nugenics, the number one selling free testosterone booster at GNC. Plus, text now and we'll include a bottle of new Nugenics Thermo, our most powerful fat incinerator ever, to help get you back into shape fast, absolutely free. Text BELT to 42424. That's BELT to 42424. Are you looking to hire an IT specialist or a logistics expert, a medical technician, or a security professional? Well, there are some very qualified candidates out there. America's wounded warriors. These men and women returning from battle are eager to get back to life at home and a good job. Some have wounds you can see, and some have wounds you can't see, like post-traumatic stress disorder. For these accomplished professionals, Wounded Warrior Project has developed the Warriors to Work program, a career counseling service that helps wounded warriors translate their military experience to the civilian workplace. These warriors have world-class job skills and a unique perspective on teamwork. And to ensure proper placement for each individual, Wounded Warrior Project works with employers to find just the right candidate for the job. When your company is looking to hire talented, highly trained employees, Contact Wounded Warrior Project at findwwp.org. Welcome home, the brave. 32. It's 5 till. Douglas Hyde has today's Hollywood Minutes and, among other things, something new from Kanye. Whole life selling drugs. Wash us in the blood. Wash us in your blood. Wash us in the blood. Kanye West just dropped the official music video for Wash Us in the Blood. The new song is from his upcoming album, God's Country, and was mixed by rap legend Dr. Dre. The video begins with images from recent Black Lives Matter protests and ends with his daughter, North, dancing to gospel music. We have not lost the Enterprise, Mr. Wolf. We are not going to lose the Enterprise. Not to the Borg, not while I'm in command. Patrick Stewart has inked a deal to write a memoir. The veteran actor will be turning 80 soon and says he finally has the time to slow down and tell his life story since the pandemic halted production on his current show, Star Trek Picard. No word yet on a title or a release date. Composer Johnny Mandel has died. Mandel wrote the famous MASH theme and music for many other TV shows and movies, including Freaky Friday and Caddyshack. But he is. He won an Oscar for his song, The Shadow of Your Smile, from the Elizabeth Taylor Richard Burton film, The Sandpiper. Mandel was 94. In Hollywood, I'm Douglas Hyde. It's three before the hour from our Don't Try This at Home file. A record-setting pro attempts a bizarre feat sure to make a big splash. As we hear more from Jeremy Roth. 92 wet sponges to the face in one minute. It's the latest attempt from professional record breaker David Rush that's bound to make a big splash. Rush breaks Guinness World Records to promote STEM education. He has more than 150 titles to his name. So why wet sponges to the face? Why not? Call it weird if you wanna, but Rush and his neighbor's feet helped promote a local summer reading program.
Well, we hope the kids can soak up that. America in the Morning is produced by Tom Delac, our senior producer, Kevin Delaney. For Thursday, July 2nd, 2020, I'm John Trout, Westwood One News. When I was little, I didn't talk for a long time. I liked things to always be the same. Anything new or different would scare and upset me. I was very sensitive to lights and sounds. It was almost like I had bigger eyes and ears than everyone else. So I built secret hiding places where nothing could get in. I didn't like looking people in the eye. It made me feel uncomfortable. I'd throw big tantrums over little things like when my socks didn't match. Sometimes I'd do the same things over and over. Until one day, I found out I had autism. My family got me help. Slowly, I learned how to live with it better. You can see signs of autism in children as young as 18 months. Early intervention can make a lifetime of difference. Learn the signs at autismspeaks.org slash signs. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Get the free KPL News app in the App Store and Google Play. News Talk 96.5 KPEL. Brobridge. Lafayette. 50,000 new cases. I'm Dave Anthony, Fox News. That's the new coronavirus record in the U.S., tallying up all reported infections yesterday. White House Task Force Dr. Deborah Burks urging us to take it seriously. So that people understand what their risks are, so that people can get tested, and so that people understand the importance of wearing a mask. President Trump's long been criticized for not wearing a mask in public. Fox's Rachel Sutherland has more live. Dave, the president says he's all for masks, telling the Fox Business Network he doesn't wear one routinely because people are tested before they come in to contact with him. I had a mask on. I sort of liked the way I looked. Okay, I thought it was okay. It was a dark black mask, and I thought it looked okay. It looked like the Lone Ranger. President Trump says he doesn't believe masks should be mandatory for people across the country because some areas have lower infection rates. The president also said he supports another round of stimulus and maybe even higher payments for Americans, but he said the legislation has to be done right. Dave? Rachel, the president also again called the bounty store a hoax that Russia paid Taliban militants to kill U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan. From what I hear, and I hear it pretty good, uh, the intelligence people didn't even, many of them didn't believe it happened at all. Democrats have seized on reports the intel was in his written briefings. Democratic Senator Joe Manchin says not only did the president, quote, fail our service members, but he broke his oath to protect and defend the Constitution. It would be unconscionable to think that he did not immediately inform Putin that America would retaliate in the most damning way possible. Later today, that's Fox's Christian Fisher. Later today, Republicans and Democratic leaders of the intelligence committees will get a briefing from the CIA director. That Seattle CHOP protest zone has been dismantled. Police Chief Carmen Bess says they made more than three dozen arrests. A failure to disperse, obstruction, assault, and unlawful weapon possession, and a few other um, crimes. America's listening to Fox News.
It's already a number one bestseller, and it's called Blitz. Trump will smash the left and win. By famed author David Horowitz, Blitz makes predictions about President Trump that will shock you. He also warns about radical groups like Antifa. Blitz is at bookstores, or get the free offer and save $28. Just call 800-NEWSMAX or go to Blitz411.com. Blitz411.com. Mike Huckabee says if everyone read Blitz, Trump would win. Newsmax says it's the best book for 2020. Call 800-NEWSMAX for the free offer now. If you shop online, you need to hear this. Truth is, there are deals out there you're probably not getting. That's why there's Honey. Honey is a free browser extension that scans the internet for discounts when you shop online, then applies the biggest savings to your cart automatically. It works on Amazon, Nike, Best Buy, Target, practically everywhere you shop. Exactly. Add Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash audio. That's joinhoney.com slash audio. Another hot, hazy, humid day coming up across Acadiana with some of that dust still lingering in the forecast here, maybe flaring up some of the sinuses out there again for today. Temperatures get up to about 93 degrees in the afternoon. Heat index going to be well into the triple digits, lows in the upper 70s. Should stay fairly quiet out there tonight, but looking ahead into tomorrow, cold front is going to be pushing its way into the region and then stalling, bringing rainfall into the forecast starting tomorrow afternoon, tomorrow evening, and lasting through the weekend. From the Storm Team 3 Weather Lab, I'm KTC Meteorologist Daniel Phillips on News Talk 96.5. Welcome to July 4th, The Moments That Made Us, a Fox News Radio special looking at the memorable moments which have taken place on July 4th throughout America's history. Here is your host, C.J. Papa. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Hello, everyone. I'm C.J. Papa, and that is perhaps the best-known line from the Declaration of Independence, adopted by the Continental Congress 244 years ago. And while the Declaration may be the most famous of the meaningful events which have taken place on America's birthday it is far from the only one over the next hour we will take you on a trip through history to point out some of these significant moments and we will also discuss their significance with some special guests so without further ado let's get started and we begin less than 30 years after America's birthday. In 1801, newly elected President Thomas Jefferson announced the creation of West Point. One year later in 1802, the U.S. Military Academy opened, situated in West Point, New York, along the Hudson River. The Academy has been training officers for the U.S. Army ever since. The class of 2020's commencement was a little different, of course, delayed by the coronavirus until just a few weeks ago. President Trump became the 12th sitting commander-in-chief to deliver the commencement address and in doing so, so he reflected on the Academy's aura in history. Few words in the English language and few places in history have commanded as much awe and admiration as West Point. This premier military academy produces only the best of the best, the strongest of the strong, and the bravest of the brave. West Point is a universal symbol of American gallantry, loyalty, devotion, discipline, and great skill. 
It seems Thomas Jefferson liked doing big things on July 4th. The very next year, after the opening of West Point in 1803, Jefferson announced the finalization of the Louisiana Purchase from France. The deal, which had been finalized that April 30th, added approximately 827,000 square miles to the country west of the Mississippi and doubled the U.S. size. The cost, $15 million or about $18 a square mile. The purchase included land from 15 present U.S. states and two Canadian provinces, including the entirety of Arkansas, Missouri, Iowa, Oklahoma, Kansas, and Nebraska, and portions of North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, Minnesota, New Mexico, Texas, and of course, Louisiana. And one more Jefferson note, he and John Adams, our second president, each died July 4th, 1826, the 50th anniversary of the adoption of the Declaration of Independence. Adams' final words were said to be, Jefferson lives, as Adams, who was in Massachusetts, did not know that Jefferson would pass away in Virginia on the same day. And did you know that they are not the only presidents to pass away on July 4th? Our fifth president, James Monroe, the man best known for the Monroe Doctrine, a policy of opposing European colonialism in the Americas died just five years after Adams and Jefferson on July 4th, 1831. This is a good time to welcome one of our special guests, Dr. Robert Sanders from the University of New Haven. Dr. Sanders is the chair of that school's National Security Department and a retired U.S. Navy Judge Advocate General Corps Captain. Doctor, welcome. You are, of course, well-versed in government and history. What do you make of the fact that the first 50 or so years of America's history is so dominated by one man, Thomas Jefferson. Well, he had a, a very vivid part in our history. So let's go right back to why we celebrate this day, the 4th of July. We celebrate it because of a document that Thomas Jefferson penned and that the founding fathers uh, from the colonies all agreed upon and signed their name to the Declaration of Independence. Now, they actually finished the document on July 1st, uh, but it took a couple of days before everyone would come to an agreement and sign off on it and uh, pen your name. Now, their names didn't have to actually be on the document for it to be what it was, uh, but it was a way of pledging themselves to each other and essentially making themselves insurgents uh, as far as the, the crown in England was concerned. Now, a- another interesting July 4th event in 1827 in New York City, which once had the second largest slave population in the United States, it abolished slavery. Although that move by New York was many, many years ago, how important is the symbolism of it taking place on July 4th? Well, let's let's take that and unpack that for a second. Okay. So they actually voted... 10 years earlier to push out into the future 10 years later for slavery to be abolished in New York. So in 1817, uh, the legislature said, well, in 1827, you know what we're going to do? We're going to abolish slavery, but we're not going to just fully abolish slavery. Here's how we're going to do it. We're going to say that any woman who was born in this 10 year period continues to be a slave. Anybody, children born to her, have to serve to the age of 28 if they're a woman and 25 if they're a man after 1827. 
So abolishing slavery, yes. Ties to hemstrick the American public who are of African descent from being able to benefit the full riches of the American promise continued. So when we think about those events, we have to unpack them and look at them a little bit deeper. And if we then jump forward to today, you can understand the level of frustration and concern that Americans and Africans said all over the country have when we think about the 4th of July. Oh, you're and right about so that. Let, me, let me add a date to you for that. For that. And it's kind of out of order here, but if you think about Frederick Douglass, so Frederick Douglass was uh, an abolitionist and a statesman of the day. Frederick Douglass was scheduled to give a, a, a speech on the 4th of July of 1852. Uh, he actually gave it on the 5th, but in the African-American community, it's celebrated all over America on the 4th of July. Young men and women repeat this speech and the speech is what to the slave is the 4th of July. And if you think about that in context, as a precursor statement for the American Civil War, uh, that speaks volumes. Well, I, I, you really put it in context there for us, Professor. And uh, uh, we'll check back with you in just a little bit uh, later in the show. Professor Robert Sanders joining us. Of course, you can't have July 4th without patriotic songs. And did you know that one of the best-known songs about our country performed for the first time July 4th, 1831, written by a theology student named Samuel Francis Smith at the request of a friend of his. And the word is it took him just 30 minutes to write the lyrics to the tune, God Save the Queen. The song was first performed by a children's choir in Boston. It was known then as America Today. We know it as My Country, Tis of Thee. And here's one of the great performances of the song to listen to. Kelly Clarkson at the second inauguration of President Barack Obama. My country, tis of thee. that made us comes your way right after this here for you in times of uncertainty tracking coronavirus i'm rob kirkpatrick on this town square media station team you can rely on even on the darkest days i'm bernadette lee with your news and information update we're working for you on air behind the scenes every single day we're following a potential hazmat situation on i-10 this morning as you get out and hit the road bernie's got the information you need to know your radio home for news and information for more than 60 years. You know, it's everything I need in the morning. News Talk 96.5. KPL. Welcome back, 
everyone, on July 4th, the moments that made us a Fox News Radio special. I'm your host, CJ Papa, and talk about big moments. And you know, everything is bigger in Texas, and it is hard to think about America without the Lone Star State. But it once was its own republic after having previously been claimed by Spain, France, and Mexico. But on July 4th, 1845, the Texas Congress passed an ordinance agreeing to be annexed into the United States. And on February 14th, 1846, Texas officially relinquished its sovereignty to the United States. Less than 20 years after Texas joined the Union, the Union found itself in a battle with the Confederacy during the Civil War. And July 4th, 1863 marked a major moment in the war, the turning point for the country as well. After three days of extensive battle at Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, which saw more than 50,000 men killed in all, General Robert E. Lee, the commander of the Southern troops, was forced to withdraw. The battle was the turning point in the war, and the Confederate troops never recovered, leading to the North winning the war and the Union being saved. This is a good point to welcome back our guest, Professor Robert Sanders from the University of New Haven. Professor Sanders is the chair of that school's National Security Department and a retired U.S. Navy Judge Advocate General Corps Captain. I find it extremely interesting as time has moved along almost 100 years since the founding of America that July 4th continued to serve as such a focal point for major moments in American history. You know, the Louisiana Purchase, the Battle of Gettysburg, each having ties to July 4th is quite the confluence of events. Well, Louisiana Purchase essentially doubled the size of America. Our country basically ended at where the Ohio River begins. And at the end of that 800,000 mile purchase uh, for $15 million, America now stretched from what we now call the state of Ohio all the way across into the state of Colorado, all the way north into Canada, and all the way south on the edges of Texas, down to New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh, that was a momentous event that was capped on the 1803 4th of July. And for the Battle of Gettysburg, it, when we take the 4th of July at Gettysburg, we need to step back actually to the 1st of January of 18. 63. So on the 1st of January, 1863, President Lincoln declared all enslaved Africans in the rebellious states to be free. Forward to January, to July the 1st, and the Battle of Gettysburg begins. The Army of North Virginia, Northern Virginia, led by Robert E. Lee, moving into the North, Pennsylvania in particular, capturing territory, enslaving Africans, destroying farms, looting the farms, and begin the, the threatening of the capital of the United States to the east, Washington, D.C. After that battle where more Americans died in a single combat on our shores, the Confederate forces in Northern Virginia were decimated by July 4th, and they withdrew that army was never the same again. It was never able to threaten the North and essentially went from an offensive military force to a defensive military force trying to protect and hold the Confederate States from invasion. That event also led to the famous speech at the now cemetery battleground of Gettysburg by Abraham Lincoln, with a very short speech just over uh, 250 words that now 
live as one of the greatest speeches made by any American president. More with Dr. Sanders to come. And these days, of course, we know July 4th as the federal holiday, Independence Day. It wasn't always the case. Independence Day was not named a federal holiday until June 28th, 1870, making that year's July 4th, a week later, the first official Independence Day. And Independence Day is marked by one distinct sound. Those, of course, are fireworks, and maybe the best place to watch them explode every July 4th is over the Statue of Liberty. But even Lady Liberty has a definitive connection to the 4th of July. On that day in 1884, the statue was officially presented to the United States by the ambassador to France, according to the National Constitution Center. The statue was then taken apart and shipped to the U.S. abroad on a French Navy ship and made its first appearance in New York Harbor in June of 1885. Let's fast forward now to the 1940s, just following World War II. On July 4th, 1946, the Treaty of Manila was signed, establishing the sovereignty of the Philippines and that country's independence separate from the United States. Paul McNutt was the U.S. representative in the Philippines. I am authorized and directed by the President of the United States to proclaim the independence of the Philippines as a separate and self-governing nation. In 1959, the 50th state Hawaii was added to the country. President Dwight D. Eisenhower. The 49 states will join in welcoming the new one, Hawaii. However, the American flag was not altered to receive its 50th star right away. Then a dramatic first look at our newest flag. Nine rows of stars arranged in alternate rows of six and five stars each, starting and ending with lines of six. It becomes official next July the 4th. That was July 4th, 1916. Of course, that is the design that still adorns Old Glory to this day. And here is something you may not know about the current flag design. It was made by a teenager, Robert Heff, who was then 17 years old and a high school sophomore from Ohio. He designed the flag while in high school and submitted the design to Congress, which approved it. The sequence of interesting and memorable events taking place on July 4th continues to the current day. Hotmail, one of the first email providers, first went live on July 4th, 1996. Remember that? The name came from the internet term HTML, and the company was sold to Microsoft in 1997 for a reported $400 million. And how far have we come? Hotmail offered two megabytes of free storage. These days, Google's Gmail offers 15 gigabytes of free storage. Out of this world moments have taken place on July 4th. And no, we're not talking about alien invasion in Will Smith's movie Independence Day. On July 4th, 1997, the Mars Pathfinder rover landed on the red planet. Its mission to analyze Mars's atmosphere, climate, and geology. Here's what things sounded like from NASA that day. This is a moment that they've been working for for years, but it comes down to a bunch of guys, ladies and gentlemen, walking around with their arms folded and, and their hands in their pockets, uh, waiting for news like expectant fathers, really. It's a very good analogy, is you have to receive information. You cannot help it in any way. What's going to happen is going to happen, and all you're doing is finding out if it was success successful or not. Correct me if I'm wrong, I am told that a signal is barely visible. They are getting the signal back. That is great. It's a very good sign, everybody. <laughs> okay. 
back to the safe gravity of Earth as uh, we are joined again by Dr. Robert Sanders. Uh, sir, uh, one last question for you. Do you still expect July 4th to be a critical date in American history? And where do you think the American ideal goes as we pass our 250th anniversary as a nation and beyond? In America, we started a revolution. The revolution started with the death of an African-American. Maybe the 4th of July in 2020, following the death of another African-American, is a new revolution. Hopefully not a kinetic one, but one of social and cultural significance to where we start to finally recognize equality as it was laid out in the document for all men and women uh, of all colors, of all races, and from all nations, uh, not a man, not an individual, not a uh, particular movement, but in the force of the nation and the documents which founded it. Dr. Robert Sanders from the University of New Haven, thank you so much. Well, happy 4th of July. When we come back, we'll explore July 4th's history in the sports world, which we will discuss with New York Post columnist Mike Vaccaro. You won't believe some of the memorable events that have taken place. Stay tuned. We will resume our trip through history as July 4th, the moments that made us, continues in just a com. It's the bottom of the hour. Now the top stories from KPL965.com. Mayor President Josh Guillory has requested the removal of the Alfred Mouton statue in downtown Lafayette. Guillory says he will do this and ask the court for permission to allow the Mouton statue to be protected from destruction to, quote, ensure it finally rests at the most appropriate place after proper historical context of his life and legacy. Guillory says he will ask the city council to pass a resolution in support of these actions. Governor John Bell Edwards warns the state is on a bad trajectory of COVID-19 case growth that could, if it were to continue, have him consider putting back restrictions. Edwards says the rate of positivity among tests has gone up to just shy of 10%, which is the White House's recommended level for reopening. Over 2,000 new cases were reported yesterday, the third highest mark since the pandemic started. Baton Rouge will now be one of three locations set up by the federal government to ramp up testing to 5,000 per day. Edwards says the uptick in coronavirus metrics has garnered the attention of the White House, especially in the capital area. Baton Rouge Mayor Sharon Weston Broom says she mandated the use of face coverings while inside buildings. Broom also said she's not ruling out the possibility of closing bars. Lieutenant Governor Billy Nungesser wrote a letter to President Trump asking for federal aid for the state's ailing seafood industry. Nungesser says his letter to Trump was directed at the White House's plan to give funds to the lobster industry on the East Coast, while Louisiana could use some of that money as well. UL Lafayette will begin its fall 2020 semester on Monday, August 17th. The earlier start date is one of several changes the university has made to its academic calendar as it prepares for the safe resumption of on-campus instruction and housing. The last day of classes is scheduled for November 20th. We've got some of that dust still lingering in the forecast here early on this morning, and that will stick around, I think, for another day. It's going to kind of clamp down on any kind of rain chances we may have seen out there this afternoon. And you may see the sinuses flaring up just a little bit later on tonight, I would 
suggest to take it easy if you're particularly sensitive to air quality. Highs get up to about 93 degrees in the afternoon with a heat index that's going to be in the triple digits. The winds are coming from the west-southwest at about 8 to 12 miles an hour. Overnight lows in the upper 70s with a stalling front on the way for tomorrow. Tomorrow's going to start off fairly quiet, but showers and thunderstorms are going to be with us by the afternoon. We'll then see on again, off again, showers lasting from Friday all the way through the holiday weekend and likely into the middle part of next work week as well. From the Storm Team 3 Weather Lab, I'm KTC meteorologist Daniel Phillips on News Talk 96.5 KPEL. Welcome back, everyone, to July 4th, the moments that made us a Fox News Radio special. I'm your host, C.J. Papa. We've taken a trip through history covering some of the big events that take place over the years on July 4th. But there are just as many memorable events that have taken place on July 4th in the world of sports. And let's start in 1910, when the first fight of the century took place July 4th. Jim Jeffries came out of a six-year retirement and put his undefeated record on the line to face Jack Johnson in Reno, Nevada. When asked why he was going to do it, Jeffries said, I'm going into this fight for the sole purpose of proving that a white man is better than a Negro. It did not turn out that way. Johnson knocking down Jeffries twice for the first time in his career. Jeffries, corner man, calling it quits in the 15th round to prevent Jeffries from being knocked out. Interestingly, nearly 25 years later, another memorable heavyweight made his pro debut on July 4th, 1934. Joe Lewis knocked out Jack Kraken in the first round, earning $59 and starting his ascension to heavyweight champion, which he won in 1937 and held for a dozen years. As indestructible as Joe Lewis often seemed during his career, there was no one more seemingly invincible during his playing career than the man known as the Iron Horse, Lou Gehrig. The Yankees' first baseman had played more than 2,000 games in a row until 1939, when he would become ill with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS, which would later become known as Lou Gehrig's disease. There still is no cure for the illness, which provided a melancholy backdrop for Gehrig to bid farewell to the fans at Yankee Stadium on July 4th, 1939. But instead of acting downtrodden, as I'm sure you know, Gehrig delivered one of the most uplifting and inspirational speeches anyone, athlete or otherwise, has ever given. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. That I might have been given a bad break, but I've got an awful lot to live for. Thank you. More than 80 years later, how can you not still feel a chill when hearing Lou Gehrig speak with such humility and grace, knowing he didn't have long to live? Gehrig died less than two years later on June 2nd, 1941. We're joined now by a New York newspaper institution award-winning New York Post columnist, Mike Vaccaro. Uh, Mike, first of all, welcome and happy 4th. Happy 4th to you, CJ. Good to be here with you. Thanks for having me on. You got it. Mike, is there any way to truly describe why that moment resonates so impactfully all these years later? You know, CJ, I think a lot of us probably the first time we heard that speech, it was the Hollywood version of the speech that we heard Gary Cooper deliver in the Pride of the Yankees. But there is a portion of that speech that still exists on video. And it's really impactful when you see the actual Lou Gehrig deliver those actual words about being the luckiest man on the face of the earth in front of 75,000 people. You know, the great newspaper columnist Shirley Povich the next morning 
right? And the Washington Post said that he saw grown men cry listening to that speech. And it tells you that even in the moment, uh, everyone knew just how impactful and how important that moment was. And he played all those games, and then he just was a shell of himself because of the disease. And Mike, uh, it said that the crowd applauded for two straight minutes when he was done. Now, you know, crowds are more raucous now. Back then, much more polite, subdued. And you still see fans who wear number four at Yankee Stadium at the game's uh, quite a legacy, right? It really does, although, you know, I, I I prefer when they don't have the Gehrig on the back because certainly Gehrig didn't have his name on the back of his, jer- of his Yankee jersey. That's, that's right. I guess that's me being a stickler, but uh, but yeah, I mean, look, I mean, it's it's impossible. I, I'm not sure if this is for the good or for the bad, but it's, unfortunately, it's 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 almost impossible to think about Lou Gehrig without being a little sad because of how the end came for him and how quickly it came for him and what a young man he was when he died. But you know, we should never forget that this was an extraordinary ball player, and if not for the fact that he happened to be teammates with Babe Ruth, would have been celebrated as the greatest baseball player of his era, probably because uh, a lot of people think that he was a far more complete player than Babe was for all the offensive numbers that Babe Ruth posted. But Lou Gehrig was certainly one of the best players who ever played the game. And that's that was true in 1939 when he delivered the speech. And it's still true all these years later. You know, people forget that when the Yankees retired the number four that day, Gehrig became the first player in baseball history to have that number retired. What do you make of that, the legacy of that? Well, certainly something that I think uh, is, is a wonderful tribute to Lou Gehrig. I know maybe retiring of numbers isn't doesn't quite have quite the meaning that it used to, although I do think it's a, an appropriate way to, to commemorate historic careers. And it's important to remember, again, that you know one of the things, one of the reasons why that became such a forever number for the Yankees was the, was what he did as a Yankee, and not just the fact that he contracted this hideous disease. And you know, it's, it, it, it was it kind of kicked off a wonderful uh, tradition with the Yankees. I mean, all, all of their single-digit numbers are are retired, and and it, it started with Lou Gehrig, and that's probably the exactly the person you want to start such a wonderful tradition with. As subdued and humble as Garrick was, he stands in stark contrast to the man who fashioned our next July 4th sports memory. In 1980, American John Macro lost a memorable five-set match to Sweden's Bjorn Borg in the Wimbledon final. The next year, the two met again. Borg was looking for his sixth straight championship at the All-England Club, but the brash McEnroe had other ideas. Here's how it sounded in the British media. And championship point once more for the American... Borg's five-year reign. Another golden moment from Wimbledon. We're joined again by New York Post columnist Mike Vaccaro. Uh, this was uh, one of the seven Grand Slam championships Macron won in his career, and the first of three at Wimbledon. He loved playing on the grass. Uh, Mike, what made Macron so memorable as a player back in those early 80s while he was on the rise? Well, he was so clever as a player. I mean, he was able to, he had every shot in the book. Uh, his net play was was, was unparalleled. Uh, you know, he was really the first guy I think who took full advantage of of just how uh, how how well a, a, a terrific servant volleyer can do on grass at Wimbledon. And he loved to play that game. He was inspired by Rod Laver, who also was a guy who was a master of angles. And uh, look, in those days, you look at the tennis rackets that they were using. Uh, it looks like an entirely different sport than than what we see today. But the skill level was was was, was, was sublime. And look, I mean, this is McEnroe having to try and win a Wimbledon title at a time when Bjorn Borg seemed invincible. He won 41 straight matches at Wimbledon before that day. And it's just a, it's a testament to 
not only McEnroe's skill and his talent, but also his perseverance that he was able to actually finally dethrone a guy like Bjorn Borg, who really owned Wimbledon for so long. When you look at the scope of his career in London, where he lost the July 4th final to Jimmy Connors the very next year, isn't that incredible? You have the high and the low all the same time. It's extraordinary to think about just what he achieved on the 4th of July in in England, given all the things. The entire crowd was always against him, even against Connors. Connors wasn't the most popular guy in the world either because he, he had something of a temper also. So that made that particular match uh, especially interesting. But I think that's what really kind of makes the uh, the day he dethroned Borg so, so much more interesting because here's two master craftsmen going at each other, and McEnroe wins his first Wimbledon on the – Obviously, the, 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 the birthday of his home country. So a, a lot of stuff going on that day, for sure. Do you think it was because he was just a, a kid from Queens, New York, and had that fiery temper that he really wasn't loved that much in London at the time? Well, he was definitely he definitely ran counter to the decorum of the time. Uh, people didn't argue with the chair empire of Wimbledon. It wasn't done. I mean, it wasn't. I mean, look, me, others did. Ilya Stasi did for years before him. And like I said, Jimmy Connors wasn't exactly on his best behavior at all times either. It was McEnroe who happened to do it in front of the, in front of the microphones. And that's the one we tend to think about. Uh, you know, that you cannot be serious. You can't be serious, man. You cannot be serious. I, th- I think that really kind of led to a lot of it. In, 1980, in 1981, I don't think anybody could have predicted that, you know, six, seven years later, whenever McEnroe would go back, that he would be wildly cheered there. But that's what happens when you pay your dues, especially in front of a tough audience like the one that uh, generally sits in the seats at center court at Wimbledon. Thanks, Mike. We'll have more from him coming up and more memorable sports moments which took place on July 4th. First, enjoy some more fireworks on this Independence Day. Stay tuned. More July 4th, The Moments That Made Us, comes your way right after this. In case you haven't heard, a devastating Facebook advertiser boycott is spinning out of control. At stake is $70 billion. Your Thursday consumer tech update is brought to you by T-Mobile. Their advanced network now goes farther than ever before. Visit T-Mobile.com slash 55 today. The list grows every day. Verizon, Coca-Cola, Levi's, Honda. Starbucks, Denny's, Ford, Pfizer, Hershey, Microsoft, Target, CVS. Too many to name them all. And Facebook brought this all on itself with its years of arrogance and ignorance. For years, Facebook has done whatever it wanted. Terrorists, child molesters, and racists ran rampant on their system. When forced to comment, Zuckerberg and company would wring their hands and mumble something about the First Amendment. Which brings us to the ignorance. The First Amendment only protects government from restricting speech. It does not force Facebook to remove objectionable material. Let's see how they spin this one. I'm Kim Commando. It's the perfect time for a powerful business refresh during Dell Technologies Cyber Savings Event with up to 50% off high-performance Windows 10 business laptops, desktops, and servers, plus top brand electronics. It's also your chance to streamline IT and simplify PC life cycles with PC as a service. Dell Technology recommends Windows 10 Pro for business. Call 877-ASK-DELL for a Dell Technologies advisor who could help you find the right tech. That's 877-ASK-DELL or visit dell.com slash smallbusinessdeals. Whether you're working from home or working on your fitness, you need a pair of premium wireless earbuds and Raycon is the way to go. Raycons start at about half the price of other premium brands on the market, and they sound just as amazing. Their everyday E25 earbuds are their best model yet, 
With six hours of playtime, more bass, and a comfortable noise-isolating fit, you can rock all day long. Get 15% off your order at buyraycon.com slash Kim. That's buyraycon.com slash Kim. Buyraycon.com slash Kim. One of July 4th, the moments that made us a Fox News radio special. I'm your host, CJ Papa, and let's continue our look at the memorable sports moments that have taken place on July 4th and a gem thrown by a pitcher at Yankee Stadium July 4th, 1983. Here's Frank Messer with the call that day on WPIX TV. He sets the kick and the pitch. He's talking about Welcome back in award-winning columnist Mike Vaccaro from the New York Post. Mike, the interesting thing about that Dave Rigetti no-hitter was the fact that, of course, later in his career, Rigetti became best known as a closer for the Yankees beginning the very next year. And he had over 250 saves. Yeah, he became a terrific relief pitcher, almost a prototypical relief pitcher uh, as that position evolved. And it's funny because he was always kind of reluctant to do the reluctant closer. He always wanted to be a starting pitcher. Always thought of himself as a starting pitcher. He was rookie of the year for the Yankees as a starting pitcher. And obviously the moment that gets replayed the most is when he strikes out Wade Boggs to finish out his no-hitter at Yankee Stadium on the 4th of July of 1983, which was the first no-hitter for a Yankee since Don Larson in the World Series in 1956. So, uh, And when you talk to him today, you know, he loves talking about that day just because of how meaningful it was. In fact, one of the first guys who greeted him afterward was Greg Nettles, who was his mentor on the Yankees. Everything about that day was so meaningful for him. And I think it really does kind of make you wonder what would have happened if they had decided to make him a relief pitcher because he was a very good starting pitcher. And he had the chops to be a starting pitcher, but he was also a team first player, which is the reason why ultimately he embraced becoming their closer. You know, we can't forget that July 4th was the late Yankees owner, George Steinbrenner's birthday. So Rigetti really delivered for the boss on that day, right? Yeah, and Steinbrenner never forgot that. I mean, he's the, he, was, he was a very sentimental, very emotional guy. And to the end of his life, uh, Steinbrenner would always talk about that game with particular fondness because of, of the meaning it had for him, both for being a birthday gift, but also because he certainly understood Yankees history and the fact that it was the first no-hitter in Yankee Stadium since the Don Larson game. You know, Mike, there are so many incredible moments at the old Yankee Stadium, but because this one happening on July 4th, does it nudge it up there a little higher? I think it does, and the fact that it came against the Red Sox probably helps, and the fact that the final out came against Wade Boggs, uh, who was you know, at that time was the greatest hitter in baseball. So you talk about earning a no-hitter, to have to get the 27th out against Wade Boggs, who was a hard out no matter when he would face you, I think that makes it a little extra special. And, of course, the fact he was wearing a Red Sox uniform uh, really kind of makes it so. I mean, 1983 wasn't necessarily the teeth of the Yankees-Red Sox rivalry the way it would become later on and the way it had been previously, but obviously the Red Sox being in Yankee Stadium is always a special moment on the 4th of July and a no-hitter taking place that just kind of multiplies it. 
These days, it's not unheard of for presidents to appear at NASCAR races. George H.W. Bush attended a summer Daytona race in 1992. George W. Bush attended the 2004 Daytona 500. And President Trump was at the Daytona 500 just this past February. But in 1984, NASCAR was still very much a Southern sport. When the Gipper met the King on July 4th, that was the day Ronald Reagan became the first sitting president to attend a race taking in the Firecracker 400 at Daytona International Speedway in Florida. Prior to the race, he spoke to the crowd about the meaning of the day. A free country, a country where no one need live in fear, and where everyone can speak and pray and live as he or she sees fit. As we commemorate our country's birth and its freedom, I hope we can take a little while today to breathe a little prayer of thanks. The race that day turned out to be a battle of two NASCAR legends, Richard Petty and Cal Yarborough. After a driver spun out just a couple of laps in the finish, the race came down to a sprint to the start-finish line. Whomever got there first would win the race. Sam Posey and Jim Lampley had the call that day on ESPN. You are allowed to race to the line once the yellow has come out. Cal Yarborough did that. Richard Petty is counterattacking. This may be the race that we're looking at here as they sweep up into traffic. A highly dangerous situation. These coming down the front straight. Here they are, Sam. They will come across the yellow line just about together, but Petty had the lead. By the nose of the car, Richard Petty was just in front of Cale Yarbrough as they came across the line. It was the 200th and final win of Richard Petty's racing career, which would continue for another eight years. That is a record that still stands today. Petty has 95 more wins than David Pearson's 105. And after the race was over, Petty did not head to the winner's circle. He headed to the press box to meet the president. I understand that no one in the whole history of racing has ever done that or ever won 200 races. The 200 is, is very, very important, but uh, under the circumstances, uh, with all the presidents that's ever been in the United States, this is the first one that's ever showed up at a racetrack. So everybody's got to go from that from racing standpoint, and I wanted to be the one that was able to, to welcome him to Grand National Racing. Mike Vaccaro of the New York Post rejoins us now. And while I know you are not an NASCAR historian, you have to admit that was a pretty interesting combination of Reagan, Petty, and an historic win. Sure was. Number 200 for uh, Richard Petty uh, coming at the Firecracker 400, which is uh, an epic historic NASCAR race every 4th of July. And look, Richard Petty was the Babe Ruth of his sport. He was the Michael Jordan of his sport. If you, if you want to liken him to another to another athlete in another sport. I mean, that's how dominant he was in the 60s and the 70s. On into the 80s, and he was really in his twilight, and that was his last victory. But for it to come the day it came on the 4th of July with the president in the House and to be able to celebrate that victory uh, with the president afterward uh, made for a memorable moment. And look, I mean, his nickname was the king, so the king and the president getting together afterward to toast each other, that was a pretty cool moment. And the fact that, he, that, that, that was his last victory uh, also seems a little poetic, you know, the, the, the greatest race car driver of all time wound up winning exactly 200 races. You know, and I also think it shows uh, how far the sport has come as NASCAR is much more mainstream now and than it was on that day of July 4th of 1984. Our last memorable July 4th sporting event took place during the summer of 1994. That was the year the United States hosted the Men's Soccer World Cup for the first time. And the U.S. exceeded expectations, including during this match with heavily favored Columbia on June 22nd, 1994, which was broadcast by ESPN. Ramos sending on Ernie Stewart, the chip.
U.S. beat Colombia 2-1 to advance to a round of 16 matchup with Brazil on July 4th, 1994. Unfortunately, the U.S. lost to the Brazilians 1-0 and were knocked out of the tournament. One last time, we're joined by the New York Post columnist, Mike Vaccaro. Uh, Mike, although the U.S. lost on that July 4th, I think it can be effectively argued that the entire tournament was such a major win that it set the foundation for the 1999 Women's World Cup in America, which, of course, was capped off by the Brandy Chastain goal to win it all. Yeah, you know, soccer has always had an interesting history in this country. I mean, a lot of people uh, who grew up in the 70s can can remember when when, when Pele and the great Cosmos teams would fill the Meadowlands and get 77,000 people in there for just a regular season uh, NASL game. Uh, and then it kind of faded away. But, yes, the World Cup uh, certainly kind of brought it back to the, to, the, to the center of the conversation. But I think that World Cup re- really kind of ingrained it in, in, in the – uh, in the pop culture mainstream, which I think is something that really helped it and helped its popularity. And obviously, yes, it led directly to a couple of years later, Brandy Chastain's moment, which wound up on the cover of every magazine in the world, the cover of every newspaper in the world, and really solidified soccer for what makes it most popular, I think, which is the fact that men and women are equally successful at it and I think equally enjoy it. Mike Vicar from the New York Post, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, CJ. Well, there you have it, a trip through American history and some of the moments that made us on July 4th through the years. Thanks to our guests, Dr. Robert Sanders of the University of New Haven and New York Post sports columnist Mike Vaccaro. I'm CJ Papa. Thanks so much for joining us for this Fox News radio special. Happy Independence Day and happy birthday, America. The Washington Post has discovered a new victim of the coronavirus, EcoHealth Alliance. It's a New York City-based nonprofit. Starting in 2008, under the Obama regime, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, headed by Dr. Fauci, gave EcoHealth Alliance millions of dollars in federal grants in order to research viruses, in particular viruses from bats, viruses that could cause pandemics. Now, incidentally, EcoHealth Alliance had a partner that helped them study bat viruses. That would be the Wuhan Institute of Virology in Wuhan, Chicom. Now, everything was going along swimmingly, according to the Post, until the bad orange man stepped in. The Amazon Prime Washington Post says, without evidence, that the bad orange man questioned whether the virus that killed thousands and shut down our economy might have come from the Wuhan lab. And that, according to the Post, created a tragedy for EcoHealth Alliance's important bat virus work. The grant spigot got shut off. All those millions of American taxpayer dollars dried up. And you know who the Post blames? China? No, no. They blame President Trump for actually raising questions about the origins of the virus that's crippled our nation. The Chi-Coms are the good guys, you see. President Trump's the bad guys, the enemy. That's the way these deranged liberals literally do see the world. CBD getting a lot of attention these days. Level Select CBD is a brand to watch from Cadenwood, the trusted leader in CBD. Their sports creams and roll-ons are great for pro athletes, amateurs, anybody trying to keep active. No matter what activity you engage in, you could use the relief Level Select CBD provides. Retired athletes like Steve Garvey and Carson Palmer use it every day. And now, PGA Tour champion Ricky Fowler has made Level Select CBD his brand of choice, too. They use it because it works, folks. Independently tested, 0% THC made in the USA. 
Go to levelselectcbd.com. Use the promo code CBD25 for 25% off any of their full line of CBD products. That's levelselectcbd.com. Promo code CBD25 or dial pound 250 on your cell phone. Say level select and this offer will be sent right to your phone. You will have the option to receive a one-time auto-dial text message from Level Select. Get the free KPL News app in the App Store and Google Play. News Talk 96.5 KPEL. Brobridge, Lafayette. Perhaps we'll get more info on what they see as another Russia scandal. I'm Dave Anthony, Fox News. If this isn't treason, I don't know what is. That's Congressman Seth Moulton seizing on reports President Trump disputes that he was briefed. Fox's Rachel Sutherland has more live. Dave, CIA Director Gina Haspel, Director of National Intelligence John Ratcliffe, and NSA Director Paul Matnacassoni will brief the so-called Gang of Eight today on intelligence that Russia put bounties on U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan. The briefing comes as the White House maintains there was no consensus on the matter within the intelligence community. President Trump told the Fox Business Network, I think it's a hoax. I think it's a hoax by the newspapers and the Democrats. Fox is told the House Intelligence Committee will also receive a similar briefing this afternoon. Dave? Rachel, the president also told Fox Business he's all for masks but doesn't want them mandatory nationwide. You would wear one. Oh, I would, I would, oh, I have. I mean, people have seen me wearing one. Now Joe Biden's been wearing one, and the president's Democratic Challenger Out Fund raised the Trump campaign last month and last quarter. The number of new coronavirus cases hit 50,000 yesterday for the first time with infections surging from Florida to California. Beaches up and down the state are closing for the holiday weekend. Governor Gavin Newsom ordered bars closed in 19 counties. Those 19 counties also have to close down inside operations in restaurants, wineries, and theaters. Zoos and museums are closing as well. Fox's Jessica Rosenthal later this hour. Two jobs reports. The weekly number of new claims from people out of work and the monthly unemployment rate expected to drop in June with predictions of 3 million jobs added. The weeks-long protest in that Seattle chop zone has been dismantled after violence, including two deadly shootings. The father of one of the victims got emotional on Fox's Hannity. I don't know nothing. All I know is my son, was, he got killed up there. And he's just a, it's just a 19 year old. No, that's Horace Lorenzo Anderson. That's my son. America's listening to Fox News. It's already a number one bestseller, and it's called Blitz. Trump will smash the left and win. By famed author David Horowitz, Blitz makes predictions about President Trump that will shock you. He also warns about radical groups like Antifa. Blitz is at bookstores, or get the free offer and save $28. Just call 800-NEWSMAX or go to Blitz411.com. Blitz411.com. Mike Huckabee says if everyone read Blitz, Trump would win. Newsmax says it's the best book for 2020. Call 800-NEWSMAX for the free offer now. If you shop online, you need to hear this. Truth is, there are deals out there you're probably not getting. That's why there's Honey. Honey is a free browser extension that scans the internet for discounts when you shop online, then applies the biggest savings to your cart automatically. It works on Amazon, Nike, Best Buy, Target, practically everywhere you shop. Exactly. Add Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash audio. That's joinhoney.com slash audio got some of that dust still lingering in the forecast here early on this morning and that will stick around I think for another day it's going to kind of clamp down on any kind of rain chances we may have seen out there this afternoon and you may see the sinuses flaring up just a little bit later on tonight I would 
suggest to take it easy if you're particularly sensitive to air quality. Highs get up to about 93 degrees in the afternoon with a heat index that's going to be in the triple digits. The winds are coming from the west-southwest at about 8 to 12 miles an hour. Overnight lows in the upper 70s with a stalling front on the way for tomorrow. Tomorrow's going to start off fairly quiet, but showers and thunderstorms going to be with us by the afternoon. We'll then see on again, off again, showers lasting from Friday all the way through the holiday weekend and likely into the middle part of next work week as well. From the Storm Team 3 Weather Lab, I'm KTC Meteorologist Daniel Phillips on News Talk 96.5 KPL. Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming. Whose broad stripes and bright stars Through the perilous fight O'er the ramparts we watched Were so gallantly streaming And the rocket's red This is a Fox News radio special from Fox Nation. What made America great? Sam Houston and the Texas Fight for Freedom, hosted by Brian Kilmeade. We're going to look at what made America great, my series that I hope you love on Fox Nation. The focus this time is really on the subject of my book, Sam Houston, The Alamo Avengers. When I first went out and did a feature for What Made America Great and focused on the Alamo, I realized I had to know more about Sam Houston and what happened after the Alamo. So who better to put together a special with than Doug Brinkley? With it, we talked about some of the main characters in the book that you probably know and probably forgot since social studies in fifth grade. Unless you grew up in Texas, you know about this because you hear about it all the time. You might even be related. Doug Brinkley, great communicator on William Barrett Travis, Jim Bowie, and this guy named Davy Crockett. Why they fought at the Alamo, how they all ended up together, and how they lasted 13 days. Keep in mind, as I give you an idea of what happened, I go into much more detail. Sam Houston, the Alamo Avengers, now available on paperback with brand new material, including what Lincoln tried to convince Sam Houston to do. So here's a little of the beginning of this story that I think you'll enjoy on this special series, What Made America Great, as we offer this July 4th weekend look at American history. Houston's kind of a guy looking for a second chance here in Texas. He's had a colorful past. He's lived with the Cherokees. He's had a Cherokee wife. He's been the governor of Tennessee. He's had a political life. He's got military experience with the U.S. Army. He was an officer. After the double losses, if you like, 
uh, Goliad and the Alamo. Easton wanted to preserve himself in Texas for a better day, to find a way that the enemy was at a disadvantage. Which culminated in the Battle of San Jacinto, close to the Houston Ship Channel, which Sam Houston honorably led and began the process of the Texas Republic. Welcome to San Antonio, Texas. Behind me, a pretty famous building. That is the church inside the Alamo where the famous battle took place. Now, we're going to talk about this battle in a way in which you probably never heard before. But before we do that, I want to flashback. Flashback to what Texas was like back in 1820 when Moses Austin started bringing Americans right here. What brought Americans to Texas in 1820? What was the attraction? It's a time when people are on the move, and they're on the move because there's opportunity, and there's also hardships to escape. And what Texas offers is both of those. So you come to Texas because the opportunity is land. And at that time, land is livelihood. So if you don't have land, you can't make a living. Many people think of Texas as being West Texas, around Fort Davis or you know Big Bend country, where it's rough terrain. But East Texas was a garden of hardwood forest and great, easy plowing. But they didn't have a lot of Mexicans wanting to move that far north. So there became free lotteries. Moses Austin had this idea to start bringing Americans this way and deal with the Spanish. What he's offering the Spanish the opportunity is we can bring you the people that will turn this from a wilderness into a productive area, no longer a frontier. There's not a lot here. And the Spanish have been trying for years to establish communities. Mexicans didn't want to move to Texas because of the Comanches and the Apaches. And so they said, look, we got to have somebody in Mexico live there. So they did this deal to bring in the Americans to move in. Come down to Texas, we'll give you free land, no taxes for 10 years, but you have to turn Catholic. A lot of people started migrating into Texas. People were calling it a new Eden. You may be coming from the United States, but you're going to become Spanish. And when the transition comes to Mexico, you're going to be good Mexicans. You're going to obey the law. You're going to support the government. Uh, you're not going to cause trouble. Many people drifted in from Tennessee and Kentucky. It became like a thoroughfare into East Texas, and it started getting its own identity. Now, Moses Austin never made it to Texas. He dies. So it's his son, Stephen Austin, that starts moving hundreds, up to thousands of settlers into the state of Texas. The first 300 families are given property. And what happens here? Colonization changes Texas, and it changes it physically because you have crops being grown that weren't being grown before. You have a plantation and a farming. They were happy being uh, an independent state that later would become Mexico, right? They were happy because they were on their own. Led by General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, Mexico gained independence from Spain. Santa Ana, who initially fought for Mexican independence, now sought to destroy Texas's quest to find independence themselves. These guys were on their own and ready to fight. The idea of liberty is very important. And what they mean by liberty is what had come out of the American Revolution and such is that liberty to have input into our government, consent of a governed. And so what they're saying is, hey, we're no longer giving our consent for what the changes that are happening. When Santana and his supporters get rid of the Constitution of 1824, they are abolishing statehood. And so Texas, which had wanted to be a state, there are no states anymore. 
and your officials will be appointed from Mexico City. That's happening to all Mexican states. Stephen Austin went to Mexico City and pleaded for independence short of war, and they put him in jail because they intercepted a letter he wrote talking about independence. They released Stephen Austin, but he became one of a number of Texas patriots demanding independence. There are a series of revolts, and with it, the ruthless Santa Ana suppressed them brutally. His goal? To destroy the uprising. To get to Texas, he slowly, creatively, builds his army using state troops. Santa Ana was marketing himself as the Napoleon in the West. He was murderous. He encouraged troops often to commit rape. He didn't really have a great code of honor about him, but he was a ruthless dictatorial leader. And he decided, I'm not going to be known for giving away territory on northern Mexico. So I'd rather defeat the Texans and claim a modern day Texas than kind of make a negotiated settlement. The fight begins. You know, up until the early 1830s, Texas was happy to be an independent state of Mexico. But that all changed when General Antonio Lopez Santa Ana took power. He immediately shelved liberty, which was a cue for Stephen F. Austin and company to break away. Annexation to the U.S., not really in the cards, even though now President Andrew Jackson and former President Thomas Jefferson were convinced Texas came along with the Louisiana Purchase. These guys were on their own and they were ready to fight. Early on, too, they had nothing but success. America was trying not to fight a war. We did win the War of 1812, and Jackson was the hero of the Battle of New Orleans. There was a feeling of take care of America, nation build. We weren't looking so much to go westward in the sense of uh, the manifestation on steroids like it would later become. But by around the time of the 1830s, that western movement was starting to kick in, meaning the early people that moved to Tennessee now wanted further west. And this was before the gold rush in California in 1849. So in the 1830s, getting to Texas, getting a big spread of land, raising cattle, having a farm, this was considered a great move to make. And don't forget, along the Louisiana border in Texas were some of the great timberlands in North America. So in that industry, you can make a fortune on just raw natural resources down there. So it started becoming very attractive. When Stephen Austin gets out of prison, he realizes the best thing he could do is to fight and become independent from Mexico. Santa Ana had put down a rebellion in Zacatecas not many months before he came here to the Alamo, brutally suppressed this rebellion. Tabasco, Yucatan, Tamaulipas, Nuevo Leon, they were in rebellion at the same time. How does the Mexican government become aware that this state was beginning to break away? I think the big moment is in San Antonio when you start getting the Texans taking over the mission of the Alamo, that now that they are fortifying it. Surrounding San Antonio are a lot of freshwater systems, blue holes. And so it was not bad living around the hill country of Texas and San Antonio. So the idea is who controlled San Antonio would control that whole interpart of Texas. Santa Ana thought they could control the area around modern day Houston and Galveston, but they had to make an inroad that far up into San Antonio. And once you started having Colonel Travis and James Bowie there at the Alamo, Bowie is running the volunteers, people that want to stay there, Colonel Travers, the regulars, 
Santa Ana saw that this was a fight for who owns Texas, and he thought it was an easy one. He was focused on San Antonio. He wanted to restore his brother-in-law was the commander when the Texans, General Coase was the commander when the Texans captured the fort in December of 1835. It was a little bit of retribution and pride that chose him coming this way instead of coming the other route, the other road along the coast where he would have been able to bypass the Alamo arrived, reinforced, and resupplied at San Jacinto. Santa Ana moves north. His goal, simple. Take his 2,000 troops and crush the rebellion. But the Texas rebellion had a lot of previous success. Sometimes success is your undoing because it's, well, we won. And many of the colonists start leaving because we won the war. And they hadn't. Plus, you have different people, and Sam Houston is one of them, is this is what we should do. We should take our troops and this is my plan. And there's so much infighting that nothing's getting done. After the Alamo is taken and General Coase is ousted, he eventually is released with a promise to not fight again. But that promise is ignored. With forces on the horizon, Sam Houston gives orders to no longer hold the Alamo, recognizing it wouldn't be wise. But Travis, Bowie, and Crockett decide otherwise. They're holding it because of the town. And that's the part that often gets left out is that the Alamo is important, but it's important because where it is. That the town of Behar has two battles fought there. The uh, one that's in December of 1835, where the Texans capture it. Right. And then it sets up sort of a logic where if rebels have captured something, the government has to recapture it. So when the story goes, there's many stories that Bowie was in with orders, uh, James Bowie he said, go in, tell these guys to move out. Bowie and Barrett Travis and uh, Davy Crockett and others have fortified what we're standing in, the Alamo. They feel pretty good about it. They feel pretty safe. And when Bowie gets there, he looks around and says, yeah, this place is pretty secure. I think I'll stay. I'll fight with you guys. And, and what he says, Colonel Neal and I have decided we'd rather die in these ditches than give them up to the enemy. The reason we fought was to end tyranny by a tyrant who really wasn't representative of the Mexican people. He was a tyrant. Santa Ana's philosophy, it's we kill everybody because he thought you make a big example out of the Alamo. If you want to rise up against Mexico, this is what will happen to you, utter carnage. To the surprise of many, the Texas Army, although outnumbered and pretty much unorganized, would take over the Alamo mission. Unbelievable, right? But bad news was coming. Up north, General Santa Ana and 2,000 troops, he wanted to stomp out this revolution before it could take root. And his first stop, the Alamo. We pick up the fight when we come back. More of what made America great. Sam Houston and a Texas fight for freedom with Brian Kilmeade coming up. To get more original content from Fox Nation, subscribe to foxnation.com. News Talk 96.5. Depend on it. to Fox Nation's What Made America Great, Sam Houston and the Texas Fight for Freedom with Brian Kilmeade. So as you read up on the Alamo, you read other people that are passionate about it. One is Phil Collins, famed from Genesis, and the other is General Stanley McChrystal. Loves reliving this battle. He's one of this generation's finest generals, and I've gotten a relationship with him as he released his books. So I asked him, hey, General, when we do this special, what about you grab the iPad? We come down, and you tell us how this battle really took place. Now, I know this is very 
visual, but you in radio have a big imagination. General Stanley McChrystal on the grounds of the Alamo. Let's listen. General, great to see you. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. I know you love the Alamo. I do. You love the military. What what about your connection to the Alamo? Well, when I was a kid, of course, the Davy Crockett, Walt Disney show came out. John Wayne's movie came out. But beyond that, the Alamo is also something different. It's not just a battle. It's a myth. But it's a good myth. It's about brave people making a sacrifice for something they felt was important. So you have two brave commanders, Jim Bowie, and you have William Travis. Who were they like? Well, Travis was a young man. He was headstrong, but he was courageous. Bowie was a little more wisdom. He was a slave trader as one of the things he got involved in life. But he also was a charismatic leader. Most of the defenders of the Alamo were using rifles, which are slower to load than a musket. Maybe one or two rounds a minute. So if you're standing on the wall and there are not many people around you, you shoot your round, then there's this period of nothing happening. So the reality is you need more people on the wall, mass, to keep up the kind of fire that might keep the Mexicans at Yeah, back. kind of like a cascade effect. So you exactly. have, I understand, as the Mexican troops rolled up and they're right. in uniform. Right. The Texans not in uniform. No. They haven't been trained. No. What do they have? Well, they've got this commitment. For the most part, these are eaches. And suddenly you put a bunch of eaches together into an ad hoc defense and ask them to defend something like a military force. And they it's felt, pretty tough. And General, uh, they really felt good uh, early on. They had the cannons. Yeah. When the flag went up and they asked for a surrender, right. how did Travis answer? With, with a cannon shot. And where was that? It would be the wall here shooting down in toward the Mexican forces. And it was an act of bravado. And it was something that says we're not going to back off. But remember, at that point, they thought they were going to be reinforced. So there was the idea that if they could be strong enough and they could keep the Mexicans from bringing up their full force and massing, they'd get reinforced and the problem would not be fatal. Where are the Mexican troops? How far are they away? Gunshot range. They would be probably a mile away way and close their cannons even closer. So not a great distance. So those more troops come up and Travis is asking for reinforcements. He writes these wonderful letters that live on forever. And he ends it with what? Victory or death. And which is another sign of commitment. At that point, he knows he's not going to be reinforced and he's decided not to leave. So he's decided to make what would be a heroic stand. Right. And now, as you talked about time, the Texans are here. And as the Mexicans arrive, you have 13 days of a standoff. Right. Not a daily fight, not attacks on the walls, but a standoff. And during all those 13 days, the Mexicans are getting stronger. They're right. moving cannons closer. They're bringing more forces. And the people inside are getting tired. Tell me about the mentality of the warfighter. Courage is something that's different in every person. But most people are not courageous alone. Right. You get courage from the people you're around, if the people around you show optimism, if they show steadfastness, it's contagious. You don't want to let your comrades down. On the 13th day of the siege, the full force of the Mexican army attacks the Alamo in the early hours of March 6th. They came at the north wall and they came at it in force. And there's a belief that that's where the first breach was. They also attacked in the rear and down on the south as well. Early on in the fight, Lieutenant Colonel William Travis shot in the head and dies. Travis is down, so now command is gone. Bowie's not able to give orders. There were probably 187 separate battles fought. 
in this compound. Most of these people could probably only see or hear the people very close to them. Right. So the people in the north wall are fighting against this breach. They have no idea what's happening at the south end. The people in Long Barracks don't have any idea what's happening. So suddenly each person is finding their own courage in small groups right. are making their own stand. And where Long Barracks is, finally in the chapel, a series of small engagements that add up to the Battle of the Alamo. The Mexican army takes the Alamo, executing the captured soldiers, including Davy Crockett. Davy Crockett was a very serious person for Santa Ana to kill. He had become a folk legend. Some people think he was the original American Western hero. Santa Ana was full of puffery after the Alamo. I mean, he felt like a peacock who just put another feather in his back. And he misread the victory. The truth is, they may have gotten slaughtered, but they killed more Mexicans than Americans. Ordered by Santa Ana, the slain bodies of the Texas Army are piled up and burned. It's supposed to intimidate Sam Houston's forces. It didn't. By showing a bloodthirsty brutality here at the Alamo, Santa Ana had hoped to intimidate the Texans to giving up the fight. But that's not what Texans do. They fought longer and harder with more men. When we come back, how Sam Houston had to overcome being outgunned and outmanned. More of what made America great. Sam Houston and the Texas fight for freedom coming up. To get more original content from Fox Nation, subscribe to foxnation.com. News Talk 96.5 KPL. Depend on it. It's the bottom of the hour. Now the top stories from KPL965.com. Mayor President Josh Guillory has requested the removal of the Alfred Mouton statue in downtown Lafayette. Guillory says he will do this and ask the court for permission to allow the Mouton statue to be protected from destruction to, quote, ensure it finally rests at the most appropriate place after proper historical context of his life and legacy. Guillory says he will ask the city council to pass a resolution in support of these actions. Governor John Bell Edwards warns the state is on a bad trajectory of COVID-19 case growth that could, if it were to continue, have him consider putting back restrictions. Edwards says the rate of positivity among tests has gone up to just shy of 10%, which is the White House's recommended level for reopening. Over 2,000 new cases were reported yesterday, the third highest mark since the pandemic started. Baton Rouge will now be one of three locations set up by the federal government to ramp up testing to 5,000 per day. Edwards says the uptick in coronavirus metrics has garnered the attention of the White House, especially in the capital area. Baton Rouge Mayor Sharon Weston Broom says she mandated the use of face coverings while inside buildings. Broom also said she's not ruling out the possibility of closing bars. Lieutenant Governor Billy Nungesser wrote a letter to President Trump asking for federal aid for the state's ailing seafood industry. Nungesser says his letter to Trump was directed at the White House's plan to give funds to the lobster industry on the East Coast, while Louisiana could use some of that money as well. UL Lafayette will begin its fall 2020 semester on Monday, August 17th. The earlier start date is one of several changes the university has made to its academic calendar as it prepares for the safe resumption of on-campus instruction and housing. The last day of classes is scheduled for November 20th. Mixture of sunshine and clouds out there today with some more haze sticking around. Air quality may be impacted from the dust lingering just a little bit out there today. Temperatures up to about 93 degrees with the heat index sitting well into the triple digits. Lows tonight going to stay in the upper 70s. Showers on the way for tomorrow afternoon. 
From the Storm Team 3 Weather Lab, I'm KTC meteorologist Daniel Phillips on News Talk 96.5 KPL. You're listening to American Ground Radio's Morning Minute. This week, we're getting ready for our 4th of July special by asking people from all over the country, what do you think? makes America great. But it's not about politics or political parties. It's about bringing people together on our nation's birthday to remember what has made this country the greatest nation the world has ever known. It's full of personal stories of struggles, sacrifices, and successes that could only be written in America. So join us for our American Ground What Makes America Great 4th of July special. We hope you'll enjoy it, and we hope it'll make your celebration of the 4th of July even that much better. American Ground Radio, where building a better America begins with building a better us. Return each Sunday from 1 to 2 p.m. with Louis R. Abalone and Stephen Park on News Talk 96.5 KPL and streaming live at KPL96.5.com. Okay, so Sarah, I'm dropping you off at Emily's? Yep. And Josh, you're going to? Soccer, Dad. Soccer practice. Right. Oh, by the way, I just wanted to let you know when I pick you both up, I'll be wearing my short shorts. What? No! Yep, and my dorky dad hat, and I'm going to do my dad dance for all your friends. They'll love it! Seriously? Why? Because I like my short shorts. Of course, I could be talked out of it if you guys would just buckle up your seatbelts without giving me a hard time. It's important to get your kids to buckle up for safety, no matter what it takes. And sometimes, all it takes is your parental powers of persuasion. Okay, okay, we're buckling up. See, all buckled. Good choice. I'll just have to do my dad dance at dinner time. What, what? No! Do what you have to to make sure your kids are wearing their seatbelts, even on short drives. Never give up until they buckle up. A message from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Visit safercar.gov slash kidsbuckleup for more information. Wildfires burn millions of acres each year. And each year, wildland firefighters like Fire Chief James Hall battle to contain them. But they can't do it alone. A single ember that escapes from a wildfire can travel more than a mile. It can ignite and destroy your home, your community, or more. That single ember can be just as dangerous as the wildfire itself. But you can do something firefighters can't. You can act now to prepare your home and your community for wildfire. You can reduce the risk. Do your part. Go to fireadapted.org. Get fire adapted. Learn what you can do now to reduce wildfire damage later at fireadapted.org. A public service message brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Learn more at fireadapted.org. Adopt U.S. Kids presents Multiple Choice Parenting. You accidentally cut your daughter's bangs unevenly. Do you A, line things up a centimeter from her hairline? Man, oh man, oh man, oh man, oh man. No, 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 no. Sweatbands are so hot right now. Everyone's wearing them. Like that basketball player and that other basketball player. B, get spiritual. Mom, where did all the mirrors go? A reflection could never capture our true selves. Huh? Beauty is within... Um. C. Look on the bright side. Less time blow drying, more time texting. Or D. Show empathy. Mom, you really don't have Ta-da! to. Ta-da! Twinsies. 
<laughs> I kind of love it. <laughs> As a parent, there are no perfect answers. But you don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. For more information on how you can adopt, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt US Kids, and the Ad Council. listening to a Fox News radio special from Fox Nation. What made America great? Sam Houston and the Texas fight for freedom. Once again, your host, Brian Kilmeade. Welcome back, everyone. So many people think of the Alamo and think of just San Antonio, but there was so much more. A special battle only people in Texas or historians know about uh, is Goliath. This is a fort that looks like the Vikings just left it 10 minutes ago, still intact. What happened outside those fort walls and then inside those walls is something of legend. 400 Americans would lose their lives. It would lead up to the Battle of San Jacinto, where the revenge and avenge would take place. It's all in Sam Houston and the Alamo Avengers, the paperback that's now out. But I want to give you a sense of what the book is like, so I bring it to life. Let's listen to my interview with Scott McMahon, an expert in Goliad. 1836, weeks after the Alamo massacre, the battle flashes here to Goliad, to this fort behind me, where 400 men led by West Point dropout Jim Fannin knew they were about to be engaged. It's an engagement that Sam Houston never wanted to see happen. But once again, his orders were not heeded. Scott McMahon, where are we standing? We are standing in the northwest bastion of Presidio Lava here. Unlike the Alamo, Goliad was a fort. It was yes. built to be a fort. Exactly. I look around, I feel like I'm in a fort. It was the only actual solid fort that existed in Texas at that time, and the only one that was really being used during the revolution. How many troops were here? Around 400, give or take. When the Alamo's under siege, March 6th, why did they reach to Goliad for help? This is really the only garrison that exists at that time besides the Alamo. We're only 90 miles away, so you could make it that distance in a couple of days with forces. So they had 200 troops. There's 400 here. Yeah. In charge, Colonel James Fannin. Mm -hmm. Tell me about Fannin. Fannin had a little bit of experience at West Point, his real experience was with the Georgia militia. He had actually fought in a couple of battles with Bowie and a couple of the other notables from the Texas Revolution. So when Travis comes out and says, hey, I need some help, he wants to go. What happens? They start out right down here at the crossing on the river, and they have some issues with some of their wagons breaking down. They've got oxen pulling carts. Oxen are notoriously feisty animals. They move really slow. They decide that it's not going to work. They're not going to be able to make it up there in time to help, so they turn around and come back. The whole time, Travis thinks they're coming. What does Sam Houston tell Jim Fannin and company to do? Well. Around the 10th of March or so, they receive a letter from Houston that says, gather up all your forces, gather up all the supplies that you've got, and head east, join up with me. Uh, by that point, the garrison here knows that the Alamo has fallen. The Texians realize it's time to, to gather up the forces that they have and, and consolidate. Before vacating Goliad, Fannin receives word that a company of his men are pinned down by General Urea of Mexico. He sends reinforcements to extricate the men back to Goliad, but the men would not make the return trip. Part of the men that were there were killed. The other part of the men that were there break off across the prairie, headed right. back towards Victoria. 
And what slows down Fannin is he doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't have any word about what's okay. taking place down there. So he's sending two contingents down, mm -hmm. doesn't find out what happened. Communication's terrible. He doesn't know what to do. No. Then he finally decides, I have an idea. I think I'm gonna leave. I look around, this is a fortress, man. It still stands hundreds of years later. So I'm wondering, would he have been better off staying? The problem with any of these fortifications, just like the Alamo, is once you dig in in one spot, you can be surrounded fairly easily. Jim Fannin leaves and travels about eight miles to the Santee River, where he's surrounded by the Mexican army. Dug in and ready to fight, Fannin is told by General Urea that he can return to Goliad, where he and his men will be safe, prisoners of war. But this turned out to be a lie. The men are marched and executed. A few would escape to tell their story. They don't just kill the men. They don't let them on to their fate. They're holed up in the church right here in the fort. They're broken up into three groups. One of the groups was told they're going to the coast, which would have been the Referio Road group. The other two groups were told they're gonna to be collecting wood and, and water so that they can cook and clean with it. They're marched about a mile outside of the walls of the fort. They're halted. The Mexican soldiers that were escorting them step off to one side of the Texians, turn on them, level their muskets, fire into them, and they massacre. Shoot them at point blank range exactly. in cold blood. Exactly. And on this property or close to this fort, there's a memorial. Can we take a look? Sure. They were burned after they were massacred, just like they had done at the Alamo, but the Alamo had dry wood for the funeral pyres. They had green wood here. So the fires didn't completely consume the bodies. The Texian army showed up here and found the remains that had been dug up by the coyotes and the dogs, and they collected them up in one spot and buried them where today the monument stands. As we get closer, we see two cannons on each side. Mm -hmm. Not only symbolic that they're being protected, but they actually date back to the battle. Oh yeah, these were dug up in the early 30s. They were part of Fannin's artillery park. That's the, the burial site for all of Fannin's men. It's hard to believe that the remains of 400 men buried beneath there. Yeah. It's the final resting place for the men here, the story that we tell there at the fort. Uh, it's, it's basically their memorial, their marker that, that keeps their memory alive. April 16th, 1836, Sam Houston and his Texas Army was just about right here, in front of that very tree, famously now known as the Witchway Tree. He looked at the limbs and said, well, I could go through that limb and I could go to the American border where I could get more troops and maybe rest my guys. Or he could make this decision, follow that limb and go to San Jacinto where he knew Santa Ana and his Mexican army would be waiting. After much deliberation, Sam Houston decided to finally fight. San Jacinto, the place of the first and only time that Santa Ana and Sam Houston will square off. This is the battlefield, and who better to take me through this battle than Stephen Moore, the author of Texas Rising and 18 Minutes, maybe the nation's foremost experts on this uh, Texas independence battle as well as this battle. 18 Minutes, the name of your book. Why 18 Minutes? That's the amount of time it took for the Texans to overwhelm and completely surprise the, the Mexican army. It, it went on for another two hours, but 18 minutes is the time it took to achieve total victory. Wait a second. The group that got annihilated at the Alamo, got uh, massacred at Goliad. Takes 18 minutes to defeat Santa Ana right here? They achieved the ultimate surprise. It's the most lopsided victory probably in American history. And let's take a look at what this looked like. Now, we have a scale model of what we're seeing. So the Mexicans are over there. Back they arrive first. Right. Right? 
So they're sitting there and they're kind of undercover, right? Is there is there a wooded area? There's a lot of big oaks around there, a lot of moss hanging from the trees, a lot of tall grass around 2, there. 2,000 guys? Uh, a lot of guys there, more than uh, 1,500 guys plus. All right, so, and then you have Sam Houston's guys, they're that way. Right. And how many do they have? 937 by my best count. What was here? We're almost in the midsection of where it was. This is where you get the slight rise in the hill that helped disguise the Texans as they're coming across from their camp, heading toward the Mexican camp. And you've also got this wood line that some of the other infantrymen are coming through there that achieved total surprise getting into the camp. How shocked are they as they're getting closer and closer and they're not being shot at? Oh, they're expecting the artillery to open up any minute. They, they assume they're just waiting to start firing, and it never happens. And where's Sam Houston, do you think? Sam Houston's in the midst of it. He's in the center of the field going across. He's on horseback. Is that He's, usual for a commander to be in front like that? You've got a, a, a tried-and-true military leader. He's been in battle with Andrew Jackson all that he's not afraid of battle he's right. been wounded before but he knows that you need courage but you need to be smart right because when he was just blindly showing courage and valor he was getting arrows in the leg and musket balls in the arm right so he's still leading he gets a horse shot out from underneath him and then he gets shot in the leg he gets you know two of them shot out from under him that day he gets shot he gets back up on the third one he's back out there he doesn't quit he doesn't quit until the battle has been decided before he then finally allow some medical treatment to happen. So in 18 minutes it's done, and then where do the Mexican troops go as they're running for their lives? They're backed up to the water. There's what was called Peggy's Lake, a huge body of water back here. It doesn't quite look the same today, but they're trying to go across the lake and flee that way and swim for their lives. And the horses are drowning. The men are just being clubbed to death with muskets. Outnumbered, no formal training, just a few weeks together. That 900 plus army was able to take a thousand and more in 18 minutes and then go for complete victory. And then they get the ultimate prize the next day. They capture Santa Ana. But instead of killing him, they do what? They keep him alive and only because of Houston. Everybody else, most of the men wanted to kill him. They wanted to shoot him on the spot treat him like he had treated their brothers. But Houston's wise enough to know that this is a pivotal pawn piece that he needs to keep alive. This is his key to securing ultimate freedom for Texas. So what he does is he knows there's reinforcements out there and they're coming for Houston and they'll be coming for revenge on Houston's men, but he wants it to end now. What does he get General Santa Ana to sign? He gets a treaty signed, you know, to end the war, but he also uses his official letterhead to write letters to his commanding general still in Texas saying, we have surrendered, the war is over, coming from the commander in chief. And he left the, about a thousand men, Mexican soldiers, turned around and left Texas, leaving Texas as an independent country for 10 years. Absolutely. So those are the, the battles. And Goliad, of course, uh, was the one difference. You know, the Alamo, they fought to the end. At San Jacinto, you see a remarkable victory. Really decided in 18 minutes, but finished off in two hours. They even captured Santa Ana. When I think Goliad, we don't really explain much of it, but it looks like the fort as if the soldiers just left 10 minutes ago. And you have to understand, Jim Fannin's a guy with military experience. Already had some success in this war. As you look at what happened in Goliad, they went out and they hesitated. By the time they get caught, they got caught in an open field. So they would put their turn their wagons over. Some of their horses got shot, so they used them as barriers, and they simply made a square. And they were holding off, doing great damage to the Mexican army. But the Fannin knew General Urea, and he said, hey, let's parlay. Listen, we, you don't want me to kill your guys. You don't want to kill my guys. So I'm going to bring you back to the fort, one military guy to the next. What, what, uh, General Fannin, what Fannin did not know is that the guy was running out of ammo. So when he brought him back, 
He said he was going to let him go. But instead, they brought him 200 yards one way, 200 yards the other way, and shot him in cold blood. And Jim Fannin in particular had two requests. He said, please tell my family, give my family my belongings, don't shoot me in the face. They kept his stuff and shot him in the face. So that's what was going on there. Just real quick on why I chose the Alamo, Sam Houston, the Alamo Avengers. There's so many great presidents, so many great wars, so many great moments. I get it. But what I wanted to do is go into Texas, and Fox Nation allowed me to do it and do it on the Alamo. But I I didn't know what led to it. I didn't know why those guys stayed. I didn't know why Santa Ana stayed there for all that time and finished them off and thought by killing them all and showing no mercy, he would stop the next battle. But it came. It was just the exact opposite. So that's what's been going on. Uh, that's what's happening uh, with leading up to that story. That's what's happening leading up to the Alamo. And what you have is a bunch of people fighting for uh, freedom, uh, due process, and liberty. And when the Mexico says, you're our state and you'll do what I tell you, the problem is their state was filled up by nothing but Americans. And their state, now known as the state of Texas, a country for nine years on its own, uh, that state uh, was had a deal. And when that deal got torn up, they were going to fight to put it back in place or break out on its own. So they could not populate it. We thought it came in the Louisiana Purchase. There were Comanches and Apaches and so freaked out with the Mexican and Spanish that they just left it alone. And it was the Americans who went in there and cut a deal. And Sam Houston in particular. And why was it Sam Houston? Because he actually lived with Cherokee Indians. He became a high, high profile and maybe the first high profile personality politician, military man to go to bat for Indian rights. Either way, they love this country. They love the defending this country. And in this case, they love winning. Coming up next, after the break, son of Jeb Bush, George P. Bush, the land commissioner, what we can expect at the Alamo in the future. More of what made America great. Sam Houston and the Texas Fight for Freedom with Brian Kilmeade coming up. To get more original content from Fox Nation, subscribe to foxnation.com. Louisiana Association of Broadcasters prestige award winner because of you. Thanks for listening to News Talk 96.5. Cape Hill. See ya. of Fox Nation's What Made America Great, Sam Houston and the Texas Fight for Freedom with Brian Kilmeade. So we close the show with a look at what the Alamo is like today and what it's supposed to look like in a time in which America is uh, falling out of love with our past, with our statues and memorials. In San Antonio, Texas, it's a different story. It's chronicled in my book, Sam Houston and the Alamo Avengers, now out on paperback. And George P. Bush, land commissioner in Texas, is in charge of rebuilding the Alamo, reestablishing the footprint. Awesome. Great move, but awesome responsibility. Here's my interview with George P. Bush to tell us what's going to look like when you go see your Alamo. For decades, the state of Texas has had a thirst to rebuild the Alamo. But a lot of well-meaning people on all sides cannot agree on how exactly to reclaim the footprint. And that issue has fallen right on the desk of Land Commissioner George P. Bush, right here in Austin, Texas. And he has embraced the challenge. 
George, when you became land commissioner, did you have any idea the passion for the Alamo to the people of Texas and the need to restore it? I, I did, and the reason is that it's really at the centerpiece of what a, being a Texan is all about. This is a bloody battle within a bloody war that was fought for the simple idea of freedom and liberty against a tyrannical government. When I meet constituents that have been here for many generations, including six generations since the battle, they tell me the same thing, that we've got to do a better job to restore and, and preserve it and make sure it's around for another 300 years. In a time in which we seem to be running from our history, the people of Texas are saying, save our history. You know, the Alamo was falling apart when I showed up to office in 2015, and archaeological study basically stated that if the state did not intervene, that it would fall apart. So I asked for an immediate appropriation from the state legislature to get that done and we were successful in doing that. We have a lot of work ahead of us in terms of maintaining the original church in Long Barrack, which you'll see on the grounds to this day, but also restoring a sense of deference and reverence to the original revolutionaries, not to mention building a museum and a visitor center for the millions of visitors that come every year. How do you show the sanctity of the battle while being culturally sensitive? Tell me some of the groups that have come at you with their hopes and beliefs and wants. Well, what we've told them is they have a seat at the table and they can uh, communicate their concerns. But the reason why millions of people come every year to the Alamo is for the Battle of 1836. Describe it as you know it. What does it mean to George P. Bush restoring the Alamo, a battle that ended so horribly for the 200 that fought? Well, to me, as a military veteran, it shows tremendous pride. Uh, these were defenders that knew the consequence of not receiving support uh, from other parts, despite the messages that were conveyed by William Barrett Travis to ask for convoys and support. They knew over time that they would not get it. There were multiple opportunities for them to retreat, for them to surrender to General Santa Ana, and yet they didn't. It was the rallying cry for the rest of the War of Independence, which culminated in the Battle of San Jacinto, close to the Houston Ship Channel, which Sam Houston honorably led in, and began the process of the Texas Republic. Is this an American story, or is this just a Texas story? This is a global story. I think what happened at the Battle of Alamo shaped not only our state, our country, in terms of where you look at the lines that are drawn, even in the current day, but how politics play out and how geopolitics plays out throughout the world. We started this story in San Antonio at the Alamo. We continued it right here in San Jacinto, right outside Houston. And the battle continues in Austin, Texas, the capital of this state, on how to best remember the men who fought here. Regardless how that turns out, one thing is clear. Without Sam Houston's leadership and the courage and valor of the men who fought under him, Texas doesn't get its independence. It doesn't get annexed to America years later. And America's march west does not take root like it did. Which leads me to why I titled the book Sam Houston and the Alamo Avengers, The Texas Victory That Changed American History. Just want to tell you in the paperback, I added a chapter you'll find fascinating. I know I did researching it, is how he wanted to stay out to Sam Houston as governor of Texas of the Civil War. He knew they were going to lose and hundreds of the thousands would die. And guess who wanted to keep him out? Abraham Lincoln. In the end, since most Texans wanted to be with the Confederacy, Sam Houston quit through the telegrams into the fire and walked away. Sadly, he would die before the Civil War was done, and most of his predictions did, in fact, come true. You've been listening to a Fox News radio special presentation from Fox Nation. To see and hear more exclusive content from Fox Nation, subscribe by going to foxnation.com. Fox News commentary. I'm Jimmy Fallon, and the Rolling Stones are threatening to sue the Trump campaign. I'll give you a backstage pass to the court case next. 
You know that untuck it shirt you've been eyeing? Maybe it's that button down that comes out of the dryer looking perfectly crisp or that super soft polo that actually wicks away sweat. This July 4th weekend is the perfect time to buy it. Take 25% off everything at Untuck It with our July 4th sale on now. Our famous polos and lightweight linen shirts are perfect for summer and are 25% off right now. Visit us now at UntuckIt.com or an Untuck It store near you. Untuck It, shirts designed to be worn untucked. So the Rolling Stones are once again threatening to sue the Trump campaign to stop the president from playing their songs at his rallies. They've explored this option in the past, only to find out you can't always get what you want. Okay, I've got to be careful with the Stones puns, because if you start me up, I'll never stop. I'm serious. Wild horses couldn't drag me away. The group is trying to drag the president away from their music by hiring a performing rights organization to deny its use under something called the political entity's license. Personally, I think it's a shame the two can't work together because certain Rolling Stones songs are perfect for this president. He's always been a bit of a midnight rambler on Twitter, and Trump will be the first to tell you he can't get no satisfaction from the fake news media. Either way, let's hope they clear this up soon, because the Stones have been talking about going back out on Twitter in 2021. And they're still as good as ever. Although at their age, they've changed brown sugar to brown splenda. And get off of my cloud is now get off of my lawn. That's your Fox News commentary. News Talk 96.5 KPEL Brobridge Lafayette. This is a Fox News alert. Millions more Americans get back to work. I'm Dave Anthony, and the unemployment rate has dropped. We got two reports a short time ago. Fox's Lillian Wu has the details live. Hey, Dave. Well, the June jobs report just in showing 4.8 million new jobs created. That is above the 3 million openings expected. The unemployment rate, 11.1%, also topping expectations. Worse than expected, though. First-time jobless claims for last week at 1%. 1.43 million down from 1.57 to start the month. Now, keep in mind the June unemployment survey was taken in mid-month before many of those new coronavirus outbreaks and shutdowns in several states. Dave? Now, lately, the reports are going over well on Wall Street. Dow futures up more than 400 points. President Trump told Fox Business. I think the Democrats would like to see the country stay closed as long as possible because they figure that's probably good for the election because it would be bad a little bit for jobs. He says he supports more economic stimulus, including another possible round of direct payments to Americans. The number of new coronavirus cases hit 50,000 yesterday. Florida's among the states getting hit hardest, but Republican Senator Rick Scott isn't a fan of mask requirements and shutting things down, telling Fox. People are smart. Give them good information. Tell them where there's the spread of the virus, the places they're at risk. Several states have closed bars and other places. Casinos allowed to reopen today in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Masks and social distancing mandatory. House and Senate leaders from both parties will get a briefing in a few hours from the CIA director on the intelligence the White House says was not verified that Russia paid the Taliban to kill U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan. The president calls it a hoax. There are reports then National Security Advisor John Bolton told him last year. Bolton told the Fox News Rundown podcast no comment on that. The sort of thing that, uh, uh, get, given given what the administration has tried to say about the book, I'm just not going to give them uh, another target. He's very critical of the president in his new book. America's listening to Fox News. It's already a number one bestseller, and it's called Blitz. Trump will smash the left and win. By famed author David Horowitz, Blitz makes predictions about President Trump that will shock you. He also warns about radical groups like Antifa. Blitz is at bookstores, or get the free offer and save $28. Just call 800-NEWSMAX or go to Blitz411.com. Blitz411.com. Mike Huckabee says if everyone read Blitz, Trump would win. Newsmax says it's the best book for 2020. Call 800-NEWSMAX for the free offer now.
If you shop online, you need to hear this. Truth is, there are deals out there you're probably not getting. That's why there's Honey. Honey is a free browser extension that scans the internet for discounts when you shop online, then applies the biggest savings to your cart automatically. It works on Amazon, Nike, Best Buy, Target, practically everywhere you shop. Exactly. Add Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash audio. That's joinhoney.com slash audio. Another hot, hazy, humid day coming up across Acadiana with some of that dust still lingering in the forecast here, maybe flaring up some of the sinuses out there again for today. Temperatures get up to about 93 degrees in the afternoon. Heat index going to be well into the triple digits, lows in the upper 70s. Should stay fairly quiet out there tonight, but looking ahead into tomorrow, cold front is going to be pushing its way into the region and then stalling, bringing rainfall into the forecast starting tomorrow afternoon, tomorrow evening, and lasting through the weekend. From the Storm Team 3 Weather Lab, I'm KTC Meteorologist Daniel Phillips on News Talk 96.5. Hey. This is a Fox News Radio 4th of July special, Living Through History. Now, here's your host, John Saucier. We're just over halfway through 2020, and it has already been a year for the history books. As the nation remained distracted at the start of the year with Capitol Hill impeachment hearings, a global health pandemic began to unfold. And our entire way of life has been turned upside down in an effort to protect ourselves, loved ones, neighbors, and even people we've never met. When was the last time you shook hands with a stranger or even someone you know, made plans to go out or visit with friends and extended family actually got dressed up. These simple acts, once considered normal, have been put on hold while Americans, along with members of the world community, confront the new coronavirus. But even when the emergency has passed, is it possible that things are never going to be the same as they were before? Welcome to Living Through History. I'm your host, John Saucier. Over the next hour, we'll look at the changing face of America and the age of social distancing as the country begins to confront a very real possibility that we may never return to the way things were. We'll explore what these changes mean for education and the workplace, as well as the impact they're having on events marking life's milestones and the much-needed summer break and holidays. Join us as we discuss the evolving changes to the way we work, play, learn, and interact with others, and what we consider normal may look like in the months and possibly years to come. As the summer heats up, many people are wondering what vacations might look like for families and friends practicing social distancing. With different guidelines and rules for each state as lockdowns are gradually being lifted, it's hard to imagine summer activities while the country confronts the coronavirus. And for many Americans this year, summer vacation, especially if it involves travel, it's probably going to look a lot different. Fox's Jeff Manasso joins us now with an idea of what we can expect for the summer of 2020. Hey John, when we think of summer, we think of many things. Kicking back, cracking open a cold one, and slowing down. Taking time off for a well-earned vacation with family and friends. Though for many Americans, festivals, concerts, even fireworks are canceled, and people are staying home, some by choice, while others have made the transition to get outside. A lot of bookings we're seeing are happening in 24 to 48 hours out as opposed to people usually planning a lot of trips and our bookings being booked you know weeks in advance and we think that's because people are of course a little bit more cautious they want to see what's happening do they feel safe traveling and as they do they're making last minute decisions to travel triple a's jeanette casalano says that most americans who are traveling 
are hitting the road. That's the most comfortable form of transportation we're seeing right now from Americans. They have the ability to travel in their car, choose where they want to stop, and it's likely they're taking vacations that are more local and regionally based, where they can get out of town for maybe a long weekend and then easily drive back home. Airbnb has also seen a significant increase in last-minute domestic bookings, where people working from home can also bring their computers and phones, and people who may not be ready to board an airplane just yet. Hotels are also changing the way they do things, with a focus on health, safety, and cleanliness, and incentives to attract bookings, as travel experts say that most of the interest this summer has been on the great outdoors, national parks, and camping. In the last 30 days, for sure, we're actually tracking the best month of our entire history. Our rentals are in the same boat. Um, they're actually tracking the best year in their history, and we've been doing rentals now for about six years. Darren Anderson, a manager at Olathe Ford and RV Center in Gardner, Kansas, and the same in Mount Comfort RV in Greenfield, Indiana, where owner Ken Eckstein says sales have not only surged, they've become a freight train, triple what they were last year. Absolutely, the entry-level stuff, the family stuff, the lower price stuff is what's really exploded. As families look for more virus-friendly options where they can bring their own kitchens, bathrooms, and beds with them, and what many believe will be a trend for the RV industry. The RV Association says that RV shipments experienced a slight increase compared to the same time period last year. Camping has been on the rise in recent years, particularly among a younger demographic. An annual report from Campgrounds of America last year estimated that millennials and Gen Xers comprised 77% of camper households. Those are up just because they have their own amenities, so they are not as worried with all of the safety guidelines because they are using their own amenities. Indianapolis Campgrounds of America Camp Director Rachel Vaughn says KOA is also quickly making up for the campground cancellations that were up 75% just months ago. A lot of the cancellations that we've had have been conventions and races, but all of the new bookings that we are getting are families that want to spend quality time with each other out in the sunshine in the great outdoors. The vast majority of campgrounds across the country have slowly reopened, though with some exceptions. Theme parks and water parks, even beaches, have also begun reopening across the country, though also with capacity and distancing restrictions in place, and in some cases where visitors will assume all risks related to possible coronavirus exposure. Another industry that's not underwater this summer. The swimming pool industry. According to Market Watch, there's been a surge in interest in home swimming pools, likely due to uncertainty surrounding travel and the reopening of vacation hotspots. Definitely been very busy. There are a lot of aquatic centers that are going to be closed for the summer, unfortunately. Having that oasis in your backyard right now is perfect. Oklahoma City Family Leisure CEO Sandy Novak. Our above ground pools, we've been probably up over 100%. Hopefully we'll keep that inventory coming in so that we can fill all those needs. And Antonio Aparicio, the owner of Aquascape Pools in OKC, says below-ground pools are also seeing well above average demands. Our phone calls have just gone way through the roof, and we're doing all we can to keep up. The same reason many patio, furniture, grills, and playsets are also selling fast. In terms of smaller inflatable pools, Amazon recently also reported that sales of inflatable pools and pool-related products, even sprinkler toys, have also nearly doubled compared to this time last 
last year. Back to you, John. Thanks, Jeff. And speaking of canceled summer plans, bands and concert venues, usually music to our ears, have been silent. Did you have tickets to a concert this summer that's now canceled? You're not the only one. We spoke with Bowling for Soup frontman Jarrett Reddick about what the future of the music industry could look like and how they're using digital platforms was actually beneficial to both fans and artists. We did a show in Galveston, Texas. It was great, but it was the beginnings of the coronavirus, and it just so happened to be that our stage was sponsored by Corona beer. Of course, I found the humor in that. That humor did not last as the world quickly changed. We went from, it's not going to be that big a deal. Why is there no toilet paper to okay, now we've canceled all of our shows in the summer. We've canceled our fall tour. We have no shows for the rest of the year. What are we doing? With no shows to play, Reddick was not only losing money, but noticed a difference in his own mental health. Suffer from uh, some pretty gnarly anxiety and depression. And what I didn't realize when that all went away was how that was going to impact me. I really wasn't scared of getting sick. I really wasn't worried about my family or anything like that because we were doing what we were supposed to do. I just found myself just, man, I'm a mess. But technology allowed the music to carry on. People are realizing that live streamed concerts really aren't that bad of a thing. Reddick, along with others in the industry, also evolved their social media presence during the pandemic. I'm 48 years old learning yet another social media thing. And what about the future of live music? It isn't only about fan safety. I asked Reddick if he would feel safe performing live again. I don't. First, we do like a VIP thing. It's very interactive. Do an acoustic show. They listen and watch. Then they come up and they take a photo with us, our arms around each other. You may not know this, but Jared Reddick is not only the lead singer for Bowling for Soup, he's also the voice of Chuck E. Cheese. Yes, the mouse. I love being Chuck E. Cheese. It's the best thing that's ever happened to me. Look, I'm just a mouse, and I like to entertain people and sell pizza and skee-ball. Reddick also revealed that Bowling for Soup is getting back to their roots and recording a new album. We're actually going to go up to the Poconos, where our bass player Rob lives. We're going to do an old school, something that we haven't done in 10 years. I want to go to a place, and I want to record an album, and when we leave there, we just recorded an album. Coming up, we'll look a bit further beyond summer and check out what things may look like as we make the push to return to some semblance of normal in both the workplace and the classroom. Fox's Evan Brown will explain how different your office space may look when you head back in and what will it take to get students back inside the classroom and learning in person with their teachers. Stay with us as Living Through History rolls on after this. For coronavirus updates around the clock and breaking news first, download the KPL News app. It's free in the App Store and Google Play. And when you're there, click the COVID-19 button for the latest coverage from KPL News. Oh. Welcome back to the Living Through History 4th of July special on Fox News Radio. Many families have struggled balancing time spent working from home while also playing the role of homeschool teacher as COVID-19 caused months of simultaneous school and office closures. But as many hope that will bring about a return to both the physical workplace and schools, how will guidelines impact these activities? Offices have spent time and money on resources to do away with cubicles and create open, free-flowing work environments. But many of these layouts include shared desk spaces and 
close contact with coworkers, a definite no-no in the age of social distancing. Um, I'm going to have to ask you to go ahead and move your desk. No. If you could go ahead and get it as far back against that wall as possible, that would be great. And what about schools? With requirements such as wearing masks and smaller classes, how will they adjust when they're already struggling? Some have suggested staggered hours for kids and split days, but is that going to be feasible with working parents? Fox's Evan Brown takes a look at what a return to school and the workplace might look like. Thanks, John. A big part of returning to normality would be if all of us get to emerge from our homes with faces shaved and hair combed or nails done in business or business casual attire or in coveralls or uniforms and get back out there. But will it ever be as it once was? There are experts who tell us not to count on it, at least not yet. There's this desire from some of the executives that we talk with and this belief in their head, which is at some point we're all going to be back in the workplace and it's going to be like it was before. And that's just not going to happen. Brian Crump is the chief of research for Gartner. They're a consultancy based in Stamford, Connecticut. And part of what they do is help employers better manage their human resources. He suggests employers devise plans based not on dates or timelines. You should actually start with a different question, which is who could stay at home? and keeping those employees at home for as long as you possibly can. Then you turn to the next question, which is which of my employees are either not able to do their job from home or the reality of their working from home harms their productivity. And that's going to vary from company to company, but that's really how you have to think about it. Whether or not an employee actually needs to be at the plant is factored on many things, and that will differ between industries. Obviously, an assembly line worker at an automobile plant can't run the machines from home, but anyone who needs to work with data on a computer or answer or make customer relations phone calls could. The question is, where could they be doing their job to the best of their abilities? From there, you can think about bringing people into a workspace facility, but it needs to be different than it ever was. And for those who do return, it will have more cubicles, more cleaning, no pantry. We're not going to be in one of those two ends of the continuum. We're going to be in the middle. We're going to have a hybrid workplace where some of our employees come into the workplace some of the time. And some of our employees are working from home some of the time. And what that means is we're going to have to make significant investments in video capability even once employees come back to the workplace. It means we're going to have to train our managers and leaders on how do you manage employees that you don't see. We're going to have to build new collaborative tools and technologies and capabilities to help employees collaborate and innovate with each other. And how do you manage in a hybrid environment that is part in person, part online is going to be the real question and the real challenge. The idea that half the people could be in the office and the other half working from home and that it changes up as needed is not just a model being considered by employers and corporations, but also schools. Brian Woods is the superintendent of the Northside Independent School District in Texas. It's just outside San Antonio. It's a fairly large school district serving more than 100,000 students. It is summer break now, but schools in the southern state start up for the year in August, not September. And so decisions on reopening schools, keeping all students on distance learning or mixing it up, have to be made. Opinions vary, right? Folks, they're thinking about this in the ways that are 
are personal to them, such as what's their work situation? What's the flexibility they have to work from home? Are there underlying health conditions in the immediate family such that sending someone to school would, would cause them to worry about bringing the virus back to the house? It's not necessarily a philosophical position. It's a practical position. It's about what's the best environment for my child to be schooled in, and can I, as a parent, support that? And much of these decisions will depend on what's decided for school districts, chiefly by state leaders acting on guidance from health officials. But Woods is concerned about what will happen if they are clear to open their classroom doors. We're also thinking if the state does not have very restrictive guidance when we return in the fall, and it's more about what families choose to do, rather than us saying we cannot serve you because of state guidance, then we'll have to have a a very nimble system that allows for families to make that choice and perhaps change their mind, uh, depending upon the family's work situation, depending upon how the virus progresses. So standing up a system that's ready to serve families in person and distant and have it change back and forth overnight is a whole other series of challenges. Either way, Wood says it costs money. Money to renovate class spaces, to accommodate social distancing, or money for technology for teachers to effectively be educating kids online. And what about public school students who will need computers and reliable data connections, but whose families don't earn much? The district, read taxpayers, would be on the hook for that. So that a student who's at home has the same quality experience of a student who's physically in the building. For us, just to give you a sense, that's anywhere between 14 and $22 million in expenditure. And just like we shouldn't expect our jobs to function as they did earlier this year, Woods doesn't believe schools in the United States will ever be the same again. I think things have irrevocably changed, but I don't want to imply that it's all negative. I think we've learned a lot about distance learning. We've gotten a lot better at it. We know that we can continue to get better at it. We see that for some students, the level of engagement is quite good. We see high-quality work from some students. We see high-quality work from some teachers. While I think we've changed forever, I'm not sure that all of that change is bad. But what could actually happen for us and for our kids could largely be up to us. And what Lee ways employers and educators can give. John. Thank you, Evan. This school year was a challenge for many families as parents struggled to essentially homeschool their children, some while working from home. When the pandemic first struck, it was like everything just stopped. Carla Montero lives in Boston and her son, Messiah, just graduated from Belmont High School. As the school year turned toward the spring semester, the pandemic surprised all of us. Not only was Messiah missing class and time with his friends, but also important events that for many define the high school experience were suddenly canceled, like the senior prom. A Facebook post popped up for me that I had quoted Messiah a few years ago where he said I can't wait for prom here we are in 2020 and he's supposed to go to prom and he can't and last year he didn't go to junior prom because he said well I have a senior prom to go to so that kind of crushed us because we were like should have went last year both mother and son stayed strong just seeing how resilient he has been and how he's been able to adapt to the changes you know the online classroom the hard work paid off and Messiah plans to attend college in the fall teachers also face their own challenges often working longer hours to prepare distance learning lessons I caught up with Katie Fernandez a journalism teacher for Chicago Public Schools who didn't sugarcoat anything about how this pandemic affected the school year. It was such a disaster in so many ways that it just, we can only go up. I mean, it it can only get better. Remote learning became quickly the norm across the United States. Fernandez talked about how she adjusted to not only continue educating her students, but also supporting them through the troubling time. Trying to kind of just meet each kid where they needed me. And a lot of it was just they needed to talk. Fernandez's students and other 2020 graduates across the nation 
leave high school behind with a unique perspective. Not only were they forced to deal with the pandemic, but also major protests occurring across the country. Chicago, like many other U.S. cities, saw what began as peaceful protests turned violent as mass looting took place. This unrest, along with the COVID-19 restrictions, really forced students to think differently. For a lot of Chicago public school students, prom graduation just became something so silly. Because when you're trying to figure out how you're going to eat and how you're going to take care of your family, missing their spring sports or their prom just fell to the wayside. Fernandez's students not only had a new perspective on life, but also the actual subject matter she was teaching. If anything, being a journalism teacher, a lot of my students appreciated the news more because they realized how much they relied on it for information. While many social gatherings, graduation ceremonies, and even religious services were stalled and people were asked to stay home to protect themselves and others, thousands have been gathering to protest across the country. Following the death of George Floyd, an unarmed black man who died in Minneapolis police custody on Memorial Day, tens of thousands of people have gathered in both peaceful and sometimes violent demonstrations, demanding justice and reform of the U.S. legal system. Ain't nothing we did stop it. Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, ain't none of that gonna stop it. It ain't gonna never stop it. Listen, we might don't win, but see, we gonna fight. Many politicians have joined calls for change, supporting those who've gone out for the cause, including former President and First Lady Barack and Michelle Obama. It's up to you to march hand in hand with your allies to stand peacefully with dignity and purpose on the front lines in the fight for justice. Coming up, we'll have a look at the nation's social unrest and financial impacts of COVID-19. And Fox's Tony J. Powers is going to talk about how people are handling life's milestone events as living through history continues after this. So you head to the hospital expecting a healthy new baby, and then 12 hours later, you're faced with planning a funeral. This is a real problem for some families in Acadiana, and Maddie's Footprints is here to help. Visit maddiesfootprints.org for more information. Maddie's works with area funeral homes and mental health providers to help families dealing with infant loss. I'm Rob Kirkpatrick, a Maddie's Footprints board member. And if you know someone in need, refer them to maddiesfootprints.org. That's maddiesfootprints.org. See ya. It's the bottom of the hour. Now, the top stories from KPL965.com. Mayor President Josh Guillory has requested the removal of the Alfred Mouton statue in downtown Lafayette. Guillory says he will do this and ask the court for permission to allow the Mouton statue to be protected from destruction to, quote, ensure it finally rests at the most appropriate place after proper historical context of his life and legacy. Guillory says he will ask the city council to pass a resolution in support of these actions. Governor John Bell Edwards warns the state is on a bad trajectory of COVID-19 case growth that could, if it were to continue, have him consider putting back restrictions. Edwards says the rate of positivity among tests has gone up to just shy of 10%, which is the White House's recommended level for reopening. Over 2,000 new cases were reported yesterday, the third highest mark since the pandemic started. Baton Rouge will now be one of three locations set up by the federal government to ramp up testing to 5,000 per day. Edwards says the uptick in coronavirus metrics has garnered the attention of the White House, especially in the capital area. Baton Rouge Mayor Sharon Weston Broom says she mandated the use of face coverings while inside buildings. Broom also said she's not ruling out the possibility of closing bars. Lieutenant Governor Billy Nungesser wrote a letter to President Trump asking for federal aid for the state's ailing seafood industry. Nungesser says his letter to Trump was directed at the White House's plan to give funds to the lobster industry on the East Coast, while Louisiana could use some of that money as well. 
UL Lafayette will begin its fall 2020 semester on Monday, August 17th. The earlier start date is one of several changes the university has made to its academic calendar as it prepares for the safe resumption of on-campus instruction and housing. The last day of classes is scheduled for November 20th. Another hot, hazy, humid day coming up across Acadiana with some of that dust still lingering in the forecast here. Maybe flaring up some of the sinuses out there again for today. Temperatures get up to about 93 degrees in the afternoon. Heat index going to be well into the triple digits. Lows in the upper 70s. Should stay fairly quiet out there tonight, but looking ahead into tomorrow, cold front is going to be pushing its way into the region and then stalling, bringing rainfall into the forecast starting tomorrow afternoon, tomorrow evening, and lasting through the weekend. From the Storm Team 3 Weather Lab, I'm KTC Meteorologist Daniel Phillips on News Talk 96.5 KPAL. Hey, there he is. How's it going? I'm having a stroke. Are you going to shake my hand or what? I'm having a stroke. Wow, you're not even moving your arm. I'm having a stroke. Are you okay? I'm having a stroke. Your face looks weird too. I'm having a stroke. Are you having a seizure or something? I'm having a stroke. When someone is having a stroke, they may not be able to say it with words, but their body language will tell you loud and clear. I'm having a stroke. You just need to know the sudden signs. Look for FAST, F-A-S-T, F, face drooping, A, arm weakness, or S, speech difficulty, then T, time. Time to call 911 immediately, because the sooner they get to the hospital, the sooner they'll get treatment, and that can make a remarkable difference in their recovery. Know the sudden signs, face, arm, speech, time. Spot a stroke fast. Visit strokeassociation.org. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Dad, this is fun. I didn't think I liked kayaking. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. But I think it's time to head back in. Okay. Can we come back? Sure. Tomorrow? <laughs> Let's check with Mom. Hey, be careful getting out of the boat. It's a kayak, Dad. <laughs> I'm going to return the kayak. Just make sure you have everything. Yep. Can we walk home? How about a taxi? 233 North Maple, please. It's a short fare from your neighborhood to your naturehood. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a neighborhood park or green space near you. Also, find fun activities to do like boating and biking or camping and hiking. Plus, much more. It's all right in your naturehood. Best day ever. Public service announcement brought to you by the Ad Council and the U.S. Forest Service. Living Through History continues with your host, John Saucier. As protests ignited across the United States over the death of George Floyd, many of the state leaders supporting these demonstrators are from states that criticized protesters in early May for marching and calling to end state-issued lockdown orders. Fox's Jesse Rosenthal joins us now with a look at unprecedented unrest across the nation, both politically and socially. Following months of stay-at-home orders, she explores whether continued protests into the summer may cause a spike in coronavirus infection. During 
During the COVID-19 pandemic, we've seen two movements, one against the lockdowns, the other against police brutality and racism. Lockdown protests ramped up as unemployment claims piled up beyond 40 million. Michigan was a key site for such protests beginning in late April, after many got upset with Governor Gretchen Whitmer's restrictions. You can't buy paint, you can't buy lawn fertilizer or grass seed or whatever. I mean, come on. I think she's doing it so she can get national press. Ten days after the height of the smaller lockdown protests across the country, much larger protests erupted after the death of George Floyd, a black man who died after a Minneapolis police officer pushed his knee into Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds while Floyd was already handcuffed and on the ground. Protests began in Minneapolis, where Fox's Mike Tobin reported for several days. Not everyone is satisfied. They want criminal charges. They want swift justice. And frankly, they want to express a lot of anger. Yeah, these... There's one of those uh, flashbacks that went up pretty close to us here. And there is some kind of a chemical irritant in it. Tens of thousands joined in mostly peaceful protests in several major cities. But looters turned some protests into riots. Now, there was a key difference. When demonstrators marched against lockdowns, they were discouraged. In May, Michigan's Governor Whitmer said, I don't particularly want to see people congregating, period. We know that that contributes to spread. But if people are going to come down and demonstrate, do it in a responsible way. Later, though, she called some of the protesters racist and misogynist. One headline mockingly read the whiteness of anti-lockdown protests as the virus had disproportionately impacted African-Americans. Reaction to the George Floyd protest was markedly different. Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti begged us here in L.A. to take the virus seriously, lagging behind other counties on reopening segments of the economy. But when the Floyd protests came to Los Angeles, he knelt in early June surrounded by protesters and hugged many demonstrators, though he kept his mask on. I hear you. We are here for three reasons. One, to stand together and to kneel together. Nearly 1,300 healthcare professionals signed a letter supporting the Floyd protests, including many doctors, writing, they do not condemn the protests as risky for COVID-19 transmission. We support them, they wrote, as vital to national public health and to the threatened health specifically of black people in the U.S. I wondered if being cooped up for more than two months at that point made the protests more volatile. I think that we all are pent up and we are mentally exhausted. We're exasperated with the virus and everything associated with it. Bart Rossi is a clinical and political psychologist who has worked with many police departments. In this case, I think that the virus is a major feature from the standpoint that even in spite of a pandemic, people came out and were activists and protesters. Rossi says racism was and is seen as an even more important health issue by those who marched and the healthcare professionals who backed them. I don't think their effort was to minimize and marginalize the virus itself, but they were leaning in a particular direction and placing their weight on the side of dealing with this racist stuff that I think a lot of people just do not want it in their personal being. Others are more skeptical. Christopher Ferreira is special counsel with the Thomas More Society. He's representing religious Jews, suing New York state and city officials, along with some Catholic worshipers over what he says seemed like our arbitrary restrictions. Food retailers are considered essential businesses under this web of executive orders. There's no occupancy restriction. Crowds can pile into the bagel store. But the synagogue across the street is shut down or limited to 10 people. This is obviously absurd.
occurred. He says the different reactions between the protests was hypocritical. They want to justify certain demonstrations because they approve of the cause and they're trying to give a pseudoscientific justification for allowing that type of demonstration. But a demonstration against the lockdown apparently would not be as favorable medically in their opinion. Obviously, this is not science. It's politics. Their lawsuit alleges discrimination and a violation of the First Amendment. And somewhere in between understanding, sympathy, and criticism of the logic is that either way you look at it, people have died. In the case of the virus, tens of thousands. Dr. Michael Mull is a former coroner in Peru, Indiana, and a longtime family doctor, and he says it was hard to watch protesters gather. I see a lot of resentment. People don't think about this, but there have been a lot of people who died in the last three months who didn't have funerals, whose friends and family couldn't get together and have closure. My father-in-law died a month ago from COVID-19 at a nursing home, and, you know, we're not going to have a funeral or whatever you want to call it until July 18th. He says if he had to predict what will happen, the virus will continue to spread in multiple waves. I think it's going to be regionally, and there's going to be different localities. It's going to be like throwing a rock into the middle of a pond and seeing the waves go out from the center of where the rock is. Thanks, Jessica. And as the CDC guidelines continue to urge social distancing, and many state officials limit the acceptable size of group gatherings, our social interactions and celebrations are not what they used to be. Birthday and anniversary parties, baby showers, and weddings have already been postponed, downsized, or straight up canceled, along with major sporting events, rainy day movies, and concerts. As we move through the age of social distancing, many have come up with creative new ways to celebrate and enjoy those special events we all look forward to. Fox's Tanya J. Powers joins us to discuss the ways our social lives are evolving in the post-coronavirus world. Thanks, John. If you hate crowds, you're going to love the new normal this summer. Thanks to social distancing and limits on the size of gatherings, many of us are finding fun and creative ways to meet up and enjoy life's events without ever leaving our cars or, in some cases, our homes. There are drive-by birthday parades, virtual graduation ceremonies, and even virtual baby showers. No longer are we all piling into a room with the mom-to-be getting a first-hand look at the presents, eating cake, and playing games like baby name scramble and diaper surprise. Now it's been moved online thanks to apps like Skype, Google Duo, FaceTime, and Zoom. The experience isn't what moms-to-be had expected, and the same goes for grandmas-to-be like Kathy Colalillo. Her daughter Nicole is expecting a baby boy in August. This is my first grandchild, my daughter's first child. It's the first baby in the family for a long time. The recent shower for baby Donald still had the games. What is mommy's favorite color? And the presents. This one is from Jeffrey. Complete with a Mickey Mouse theme. Mittens with Mickey and socks with Mickey. But Kathy says it just wasn't the same. In my mind, I pictured, you know, having people and friends gather and piles of presents for her to open and, you know, um, baby shower games and tables with the food and the desserts and all the baby decorations and everything. But unfortunately, that did not happen. Some hosts are getting help from websites like whattoexpect.com and babylist.com, which have how-to pages on throwing virtual baby showers. All right, this is another one from Nana. The sites offer checklists, and if you're using Zoom, there are themed backgrounds, a less involved take on the usual decorations. There's also a whole range of ideas on Etsy's website with themes, games, and printable bundles that incorporate invitations and thank you cards. Did we get bingo yet? One downside to having the virtual shower, guests don't get to see all the things they would in person. They didn't see the cake. They didn't see the decorations. You know, it was 
It was just her opening presence and boom, the Zoom meeting was over. If you've participated in a video conference chat, you've probably experienced the obstacle of capturing that in-person feel. I don't know how the other people were like, I think my daughter Nicole was trying to talk to them, you know, while she was opening presents and she was saying, oh, this is from this one, this is from that one. This one says, hello, I'm new here. You know, and she would hold up each present. But, you know, I mean, if I was... On the other end of the computer watching, yeah, I probably might get bored after a while just watching opening presents. And technical difficulties can also arise. Gallery view? What? Can you change the view to the gallery view? Kathy says she enjoys being creative and had really been looking forward to making party favors for the guests to take home. But now she's figured out a different way to do that. I got some candy packs. They're kind of flat. So they can actually go in the cards, the thank you cards. It'll cost a little bit extra postage. but And then I got handmade soaps off of another website that are in with the theme that we had. COVID-19 hasn't just changed the way baby showers are done. It's also affected relatives who want to be there when the baby is born. Back in January, I told my boss, I says, when I get the call, she's in labor, I'm leaving. But now I don't know if that's going to happen because I don't know if they're going to let us in to see her. Kathy told me if and when her daughter is ready to welcome a second child, she hopes it's in a post-pandemic world. I don't care. We're having a regular shower. (laughs) A regular shower with all the trimmings and bells and whistles and a big cake and piles of presents where everybody gets nice, cute little favors. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) A regular shower. We've got shoes. Kathy, you're not alone. I think that's it. Yay! Once all this calms down, see everybody really soon. We all long for the togetherness we didn't know we'd have to do without. John? Thanks, Tanya. Coming up, we'll talk with Fox's Brent Larson about conferencing platforms that are making it possible for us to stay in touch while remaining apart. That's next on Living Through History. More of Living Through History coming up next. The Washington Post has discovered a new victim of the coronavirus, EcoHealth Alliance. It's a New York City-based nonprofit. Starting in 2008, under the Obama regime, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, headed by Dr. Fauci, gave EcoHealth Alliance millions of dollars in federal grants in order to research viruses, in particular viruses from bats, viruses that could cause pandemics. Now, incidentally, EcoHealth Alliance had a partner that helped them study bat viruses. That would be the Wuhan Institute of Virology in Wuhan, Chicom. Now, everything was going along swimmingly, according to the Post, until the bad orange man stepped in. The Amazon Prime Washington Post says without evidence that the bad orange man questioned whether the virus that killed thousands and shut down our economy might have come from the Wuhan lab. And that, according to the Post, created a tragedy for EcoHealth Alliance important bat virus work. The grant spigot got shut off. All those millions of American taxpayer dollars dried up. And you know who the Post blames? China? No, no. They blame President Trump for actually raising questions about the origins of the virus that's crippled our nation. The Chi-Coms are the good guys, you see. President Trump's the bad guys, the enemy. That's the way these deranged liberals literally do see the world.
CBD getting a lot of attention these days. Level Select CBD is a brand to watch from Cadenwood, the trusted leader in CBD. Their sports creams and roll-ons are great for pro athletes, amateurs, anybody trying to keep active. No matter what activity you engage in, you could use the relief Level Select CBD provides. Retired athletes like Steve Garvey and Carson Palmer use it every day. And now... PGA Tour champion Ricky Fowler has made Level Select CBD his brand of choice, too. They use it because it works, folks. Independently tested, 0% THC made in the USA. Go to LevelSelectCBD.com, use the promo code CBD25 for 25% off any of their full line of CBD products. That's LevelSelectCBD.com, promo code CBD25, or dial pound 250 on your cell phone, say Level Select, and this offer will be sent right to your phone. You will have the option to receive a one-time auto-dial text message from Level.com. Welcome back to the Living Through History 4th of July special. I'm John Saucier. We've heard about how the coronavirus is impacting summer travel plans, celebrations, and could very well result in permanent changes to both schools and the workplace. But it also has many of us thinking about how we've been spending our money. Those fortunate enough to have jobs and no income interruption during the outbreak are embracing a more frugal lifestyle. Working from home doesn't require a new spring wardrobe and a night out on the town has turned into a TV and takeout. While many marvel at how little they've been spending and how much they've been saving, is it too soon to tell if old habits of overspending will return as the virus subsides? Bill Dendy, money manager at Raymond James Financial Services, says the pandemic has many people thinking about their needs versus their wants. Some people learn how to live lean and they're going to want to live lean going forward as they start to build their savings up and find out they're actually coming out a little bit ahead because of this pandemic. But millions of others remain out of work and out of money, relying on unemployment to pay for necessities like food and shelter. As others make ends meet, racking up credit card debt or deferring payments on mortgages, rent and auto loans. This emergency has caused a lot of people to suddenly realize that they might have been vulnerable had they been that side that had lost their job. Dendy says even for those emerging from state-imposed lockdowns with their finances intact, pent-up demand for some non necessities will be tempered by the reality that the pandemic is still with us. He says it's likely that many will choose home-cooked meals with friends and family over restaurant dining, at least for the time being. I don't know how quickly we're going to be comfortable going to the movie theater or how quickly we're going to be getting on a cruise ship or going to be staying in hotel rooms. Regardless of financial circumstance, the pandemic is teaching all of us the value of putting money aside for a rainy day or a second wave of the pandemic. No one could have prepared the world for the economic and social changes the coronavirus pandemic would bring us this year, but there is a silver lining for both. With a digital age, we're able to connect while staying apart now more than ever. With the internet, smartphones, and video conferencing platforms, co-workers, families, and friends are able to stay in touch with a click of a button. Fox's Brett Larson has more on the digital and tech boom amid the global pandemic, and the company is helping us to stay in touch with everyone, from our doctor to our child's gym teacher. Even grandma and grandpa are jumping onto the digital bandwagon. Thanks, John. The COVID-19 pandemic has been a true test of the massive amount of technology in our lives. From apps that can be used to deliver food and groceries to video consultations with doctors and Zoom cocktail parties. The mix of our mobile devices and the internet has meant that being under quarantine doesn't mean being cut off. 
And as Evan Brown mentioned earlier, it's also allowing for continuity in the workplace with so many of us doing our jobs from home. I asked technology investment entrepreneur Doug Barry if all this work from home would have worked 10 years ago. I don't think the infrastructure was there. It's internet infrastructure decades in the making, finally showing its value, increased processing power and mobile phone internet capabilities. The mobile phone was even set to get an upgrade this year as mobile carriers launched the faster 5G data network, something the coronavirus may have slowed down. I do think what we're seeing, and I think that the consumer challenges and the work challenges from home will spur a coordinated effort to move this along faster. But having said that, it's always a question of who's going to pay for it because it's expensive. Doug is working with a company that could change the way we video conference, adding holographic images to our connections. All that connectivity is certainly bringing us together despite being far apart physically. There's Netflix watch parties. Carol Baskin. Carol Baskin. Carol Baskin. Carol Baskin. Folks doing group workouts from home. All right, let's see who's here. And still others learning new skills thanks to a slew of online videos and extra time around the house. I'm kicking it off with something a lot of you might think is a little complicated. It's a sourdough starter. Or just taking some time to relax with apps like Headspace and Calm. Clearly, training the mind is about much more than sitting still with our eyes closed. With movie theaters shuttered coast to coast, streaming video services are seeing a surge in use. Streaming giant Netflix noted in their last quarterly earnings a boom of new users around mid-March when most of Americans were forced to stay home. I lead a group of soldiers. I'm sure y'all got a story to tell. Netflix added 15.8 million subscribers, double the expectation for the same time, and a boost of nearly $6 billion in quarterly revenue. They have a heart and a soul and a mind. I've learned from them. And Netflix isn't alone in their growth. Disney Plus, which launched toward the end of 2019, has also seen a slew of new subscribers, jumping from 22 million to 50 million in the first months of the coronavirus pandemic. In fact, demand for streaming services was so high, as millions of Americans were quarantined at home, that Apple TV Plus, Disney Plus, and Netflix all downgraded their default streaming quality to lower bandwidth demands on the internet. PC Magazine reports that in the United States, streaming service collectively accounts for almost 58% of downstream traffic. When we're not streaming video, we're video conferencing with friends and family. Zoom grew from 10 million users back in December to 300 million for the month of April. Competing platforms from Microsoft Teams and Google Meet had 75 and 70 million users respectively. Cisco's WebEx nabbed close to a quarter million new users in a 24-hour period. But it isn't always the fun Tanya told us about earlier, like cocktail parties, baby showers, and catching up with faraway family on video conferencing. It's also a way for us to mourn. In today's world and in today's technology, uh, recording and live streaming is, is just, especially during this last four months, has really become... Gene Allen is the president of the Texas Funeral Directors Association, and he told me they've been doing video funerals for a while now and are seeing the popularity grow quickly during the quarantine. We changed our mode of operation immediately in, in the way we presented things to families during the arrangement conference when the family would initially come in to make those funeral arrangements. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and, and give them that option. So, John, while many of us were forced to stay home these last few months, the changes to technology over the last decade are truly amazing, allowing us to stay in touch while remaining apart. And these advances have become something many of us can't even imagine living without. Thanks, Brett. This new normal will present many challenges moving forward, but also gives a new generation a much better tech presence than those before them. Children are learning to use technology in ways their parents would have never imagined. Even toddlers and babies are utilizing phones as a way to stay in touch with grandparents and other relatives. Many times those young kids are better at it than the parents. As we navigate through this new normal and look back at the changes we've made over the first half of the year, we see how important our relationships with each other are. And we forge new methods to stay in touch and communicate with others while many hope to return to some sense of the old normal. Soon, it is inevitable these changes in one way or the other are here to stay and how we adapt now will shape our future. As you celebrate our nation's independence and the freedoms we hold dear in America, have a safe and socially distant 4th of July and remember, those who have lost their lives or remain ill in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. If this year reminds us of anything, it's that freedom isn't free. And we need to take the time to appreciate what we have as well as preparing for the future. I'm John Saucier. Thank you for joining us for our 4th of July special, Living Through History. Have a great Independence Day and enjoy the rest of your summer. This has been Living Through History from Fox News Radio. Bernadette Lee, and you're listening to News Talk 96.5 KPEL. I'm Elizabeth McDonald, and this is the Fox Business Report. There are some encouraging signs in the latest reading on the job market. There were 4.8 million jobs added last month. The unemployment rate dropped to 11.1%. Estimates for the number of new jobs created ranged from around 3 million to as many as 8 million. And the reading from last week on people filing for unemployment benefits for the first time was also released this morning. New claims continue to be historically high. There were 1.4 million new claims last week. The number of people continuing to receive unemployment benefits is 19 million. Cosmetics company Cody has named an industry veteran as its new CEO. Sue Nobby will take over in September. She was previously with L'Oreal and Lancome. She left those companies to head luxury skincare company Orveda. Cody shares are rallying. That's your Fox Business Report. I'm Ginny Cosola. Invested in you. You know that untuck it shirt you've been eyeing? Maybe it's that button down that comes out of the dryer looking perfectly crisp or that super soft polo that actually wicks away sweat. This July 4th weekend is the perfect time to buy it. Take 25% off everything at Untuck It with our July 4th sale on now. Our famous polos and lightweight linen shirts are perfect for summer and are 25% off right now. Visit us now at untuckit.com or an Untuck It store near you. Untuck It, shirts designed to be worn. Get the latest headlines online anytime with the KPL News app. Download it for free in the App Store and Google Play. KPEL FM, Brobridge, Lafayette. This is a Fox News alert, a jobs report President Trump loves. I'm Dave Anthony. This is the largest monthly jobs gain in the history of our country. And the unemployment rate dropped again last month. Spectacular news 
for American workers and American families. Fox's Lillian Wu details the reports live here in New York. Dave, stock surging of that 4.8 million new jobs added in June. Also a better than expected unemployment rate. The Dow jumping about 430 points with every Dow component in the green. The S&P adding 47 and NASDAQ gaining more than 150 Netflix and Microsoft at all-time highs. We're also seeing gains across the airline sector after five major carriers agreed to terms under the CARES Act to take that loan money. Dave? Now, Lillian, the leader of the Senate on the Democratic side, Chuck Schumer, is not as optimistic. He calls this a slight peak in a much larger valley. And unless the president shows real leadership, the pain Americans are experiencing will only worsen. As some people are back off the job, states from California to Arizona to Texas have closed bars and other places or paused reopenings in a coronavirus surge. The number of new U.S. cases hit a record yesterday, right around 50,000. Just got this from the Supreme Court. It has agreed to hear the president's appeal of a lower court order for the special counsel Mueller secret grand jury testimony to be turned over to Congress. So that right now denies Congress that access. In next hour, House and Senate leaders from both parties will get a briefing on the intelligence. Russia paid the Taliban to kill U.S. soldiers. The White House says it wasn't verified, so the president wasn't briefed. Democrats are seizing on reports that he was. Congressman Seth Moulton. If this isn't treason, I don't know what is. The reports will today go to both the leaders of the House and Senate and the intelligence communities. And then the House intel community gets a briefing this afternoon. America's listening to Fox News. Drowning in IRS debt? If you can't afford to pay your IRS debt due to economic hardship, you can now be free of IRS collection efforts by taking advantage of a special IRS tax hardship program. This program allows Americans who owe the IRS to resolve their delinquent tax debt once and for all. In some cases, maybe even reducing what you owe significantly. An open phone line has been established by Community Tax for consumers to call and see if they qualify. Simply dial 800-489-6985. If you owe back taxes to the IRS and cannot afford to pay them back or have years of unfiled tax returns, help is standing by. Just call the Community Tax Helpline today at 800-489-6985 for the help that you need. Don't take on the IRS alone. They can attack your wages, savings, pension, home, and even your social security check. Call 800-489-6985 to see if you qualify. That's 800-489-6985. Another hot, hazy, humid day coming up across Acadiana with some of that dust still lingering in the forecast here. Maybe flaring up some of the sinuses out there again for today. Temperatures get up to about 93 degrees in the afternoon. Heat index going to be well into the triple digits. Lows in the upper 70s. Should stay fairly quiet out there tonight, but looking ahead into tomorrow, cold front is going to be pushing its way into the region and then stalling, bringing rainfall into the forecast starting tomorrow afternoon, tomorrow evening, and lasting through the weekend. From the Storm Team 3 Weather Lab, I'm KTC meteorologist Daniel Phillips on News Talk 96.5.